Recording in progress. Good evening. We're going to start the meeting. Um, Councilmember Harrison said she will be unable to join us this evening, but we do have a quorum of the council present. So I'd now like to call to order this special meeting of the Berkeley City Council for Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. And before I proceed to a roll call, if the city clerk can play the COVID-19 meeting announcement recording. This meeting will be conducted in a hybrid format pursuant to government code section 54953E and the state declared emergency. This meeting will be conducted through teleconference and Zoom video conference, as well as in-person participation. The COVID-19 state of emergency continues to impact the ability of council members to meet safely in person and presents risk to the health of attendees. Please be mindful that this meeting may be recorded as any public meeting may be recorded and all rules of procedure and decorum apply for persons participating by teleconference, video conference, or in person. To access the meeting remotely using the internet, join from your device using the URL indicated on the agenda for this meeting. If you do not wish for your name to appear on the screen, use the drop-down menu and click on Rename to rename yourself to be anonymous. To request to speak, use the raise hand icon on the screen. To join by phone, dial the number indicated on the agenda and enter the meeting ID. If you wish to comment during the public comment portion of the agenda, press star nine and wait to be recognized by the chair. In-person attendees are required to wear a mask that covers their nose and mouth for the duration of the meeting. If you are feeling sick, please do not attend in person. Okay, thank you. I'd like to ask the city clerk to please call the roll. Councilmember Kesarwani? Here. Taplin? Councilmember Taplin? We'll come back to you, Bartlett? Absent, Harrison is absent. Hahn? Present. Wengraff? Present. Robinson? Present. Humbert? Present. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Mayor Arguin? Present. Thank you. And Councilmember Taplin? Absent. Okay. A quorum of the City Council is present. However, um, so this is a special meeting of the City Council to take up two items. Um, we're gonna hold a work session on one item one, the city's response to COVID-19, a 2022 summary report. And item two, referral response affordable housing preference policy for rental housing created through below market rate and housing trust fund programs. So we'll now proceed to item one, COVID-19 response 2022 summary report. And um, I'm going to now turn the floor over to our city manager, Dee Wilms Ridley, to kick off the presentation. And thanks, staff, just um, not only for compiling this update, uh, which was requested by the agenda committee, but for all the incredible work that our public health officer, city manager, HHS director, and hundreds, hundreds of staff throughout the city organization to get us to this point and to help. Um, help guide our community through this unprecedented global pandemic. So with that, I want to now um, turn the forward to our city manager, Dee Williams Ridley. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, and thank you, Council, for this evening. Council Member Hahn for the request. She 
was very, very um, excited about hearing more from us about where we are and what we've done over this last year. And she thought it was really important for us to share with the community on where we are. Um, we have a team here today assembled to provide a presentation on our COVID-19 response. Dr. Lisa Barhus will be heading us off and then I will follow up at the end of the presentation with closing remarks. I just wanna thank this council um, for your leadership and your support throughout this process. You have been the utmost supportive, whether it's through policy, through allocation of resources, through assisting us as we make decisions, I just want to thank you for believing in us and trusting in us to do this work. And also to our amazing team, um, I'm headed by Dr. Lisa Barthes and Dr. Lisa Fernandez, our public health officer. I want to thank both of them for their incredible leadership. This could not have been done without them and all the many departments and our teams in OES, emergency response. All of us have worked really hard to make sure that our community was safe and we want to make sure that we're responsive and sharing information. So thank you, Council Member Hahn, and thank you, Council, for listening this evening. I'll now turn it over to Dr. Lisa Buckles. Good evening, Mayor and Council. Um, Dr. Hernandez will be running the slideshow behind the scenes. So Dr. Hernandez, if you could advance uh, to the next slide. Okay. So. Good evening, Mayor, Council, and the Berkeley community. This evening will be the third update that city staff have presented to Council and the public on our response to the COVID-19 pandemic. As you all are aware, as an independent public health jurisdiction, the city has been entirely responsible for our COVID-19 response, and we have coordinated very closely with other local jurisdictions. The pandemic has deeply impacted our community and we have consistently come together to ensure that we are taking protective actions needed to keep each other safe. Because of these actions, we are in a better place than we were three years ago when we were just three weeks away from the first shelter in place order. Next slide, please. So here are a few key details of where we are currently. In April of 2022, the city of Berkeley demobilized the EOC. As part of this demobilization, the city's COVID-19 response efforts transitioned from the EOC to a COVID-19 response team housed in the Public Health Officer Unit of HHCS. The last city of Berkeley health order was rescinded on September 27th 2022. We remain aligned with the California Department of Public Health orders, which are focused on higher risk settings, such as healthcare and long-term care facilities, and use CDC COVID-19 community levels for guidance. And we continue to monitor things very, very closely. While we will be giving epidemiology updates on the current status of COVID-19 in tonight's presentation, our primary focus will be on activities conducted in the year, the calendar year 2020. In other words, the activities conducted since the EOC's last report to Council on January 25th, 2022. Presenting tonight will be the City's Health Officer, Dr. Lisa Hernandez, and our COVID response effort coordinator, Catherine Sullivan, 
I want to thank them both for their leadership and extraordinary work to help us transition from a very long and very serious public health emergency to the development of a high functioning response team that is helping all of us to learn to live with COVID. And in this moment, in this third presentation um, and three years into the COVID response, I really especially want to honor and thank Dr. Hernandez for her incredible leadership from the very beginning of this pandemic to where we are today. She has been with us the whole time. Her wisdom, insightfulness, and humility have been incredible throughout this pandemic and has had a huge impact on where we are today. So I really want to honor Dr. Hernandez for his outstanding leadership and hard work. And I will now turn it over to her to provide an update on where we are with COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and vaccinations. Next slide, and we transition. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Barhus. Um, I You put me on the spot in two ways. One, because um, my tech skills are very poor. Um, but I'm going to do my best today to advance the slides well, and um, I do want to thank you for your kind words um, in terms of um, the COVID response. This, as you know, and everyone knows, is, is a team effort, uh, a community effort, um, and uh, I will, too, take this opportunity to thank uh, the COVID response team who um, started working on the COVID response back in December of 2019, when we started hearing about this virus um, in China that we didn't um, realize was going to continue to impact our lives for three plus years. So I want to um, thank the COVID response team, Catherine Sullivan, especially um, the clinical team um, that is uh, working tireless, con uh, continues to work tirelessly um, to respond. Um, so thank you again. Um, as usual, I'm going to start with the numbers um, and uh, start, start with um, an overview. So this slide shows a snapshot of uh, the data for COVID-19 from the beginning of the pandemic until um, actually yesterday, February uh, 20th. And we've had over 22,500 um, cases of lab-reported COVID-19 uh, um, reported to us in the city of Berkeley. 232 individuals have been hospitalized throughout the pandemic, and unfortunately, 74 individuals, uh, Berkeley residents, have succumbed to the disease. In terms of vaccination rates, 94% um, of the whole Berkeley population have received their primary series, so the first um, first two uh, vaccinations of the series um, of COVID vaccine. And 92% have received the first booster. Um, and 42% of Berkeley residents have received the bivalent booster. And all of these vaccination rates, including um, the booster rate, are the highest in the Bay Area. And our rates um, are also higher than California overall. Uh, one other thing that I meant to mention in terms of our cases is that um, our cases are um, an undercount, our case counts, and our case rates are undercounts uh, for two reasons. One, because we are only counting um, lab reportable cases, those that are taken um, or counted and reported to us, usually by the uh, PCR test. 
the rapid antigen tests that people can use at home, um, those are not reported. So we know that we are seeing more cases overall than what is reported to us. And also we know that testing activity has declined. So we have other tools that we use um, and that is um, our wastewater. So wastewater um, is, uh, is uh, used to detect SARS-CoV-2 um, virus, which is the virus that causes uh, COVID-19. And um, we use that to get a better, more complete picture of what is happening with COVID-19 activity um, in our community. And the East Bay uh, Mud District uh, uh, sewer shed is a sewer shed that captures El Cerrito, Berkeley, and some parts of Oakland. And that is what we use um, in concert with our case um, counts to see what um, COVID activity is really doing. And we see um, that currently um, we have an elevated um, count of our, um, our concentrations of COVID-19 um, in our wastewater. It is um, a, a bit elevated, but is um, definitely lower than our peaks, um, most namely our peak in um, early part of December. So we're watching um, the case counts and the case um, concentra uh, concentrations of uh, SARS-CoV in our wastewater, um, and that allows us to really track um, the activity of, of COVID-19 um, in our community. This slide shows um, a comparison of um, cases hospitalizations, and deaths over time. And um, what we see are three bars. Um, the light blue bar is uh, indicates the year 2020. The deeper blue bar shows us uh, the year 2021. And the orange bar shows us uh, 2022. And um, on the left side, we see the case rates by year, and we see a stepwise increase in those case rates from um, 2020 to 2022. And um, those, those increases are, are due namely to the fact that we had um, relaxation of, of some of the COVID um, restrictions, the shelter um, at home um, orders were lifted and some of the other orders were lifted. And we also had the advent of the Omicron variant and other variants. So that's where we saw an increase in those case counts and case rates. Um, when you look over to the middle um, graph and the one um, to the right that shows hospitalizations by year and deaths by year, we see a stepwise pattern that is decreasing. Um, and what that is due to is the advent of vaccinations and um, of medications that are used to treat COVID. So while we are seeing an increase in cases, we know that the impact, the severe impact of um, COVID-19 is blunted by our um, vaccinations and our therapeutics that we have um, now on hand to help us um, uh, reduce the impacts of the severe impacts of COVID-19. So I will stop there and hand um, the presentation back to Dr. Varhus. Thank you. So while, as you will see this evening, and as you just saw by the data, we do have a lot to be proud of in our response to COVID-19. Um, and yet not everything is a rosy picture. 
Um, as you saw in the data, 74 Berkeley residents lost their lives as a result of COVID-19. Most, though not all deaths, certainly not all deaths, were among people over the age of 75. With African and American African Americans and Latinx people overrepresented in this group, this is really raises strong awareness that health disparities continue to be a persistent challenge for Berkeley. We will talk a little bit tonight at what steps we are we are taking to bring more health equity in our COVID response. In addition, we know that some Berkeley residents were also hospitalized and others who may have experienced a less aggressive episode continue to struggle with long COVID. Further, the stress caused by the pandemic, the collective grief, the physical and social distancing needed to slow the spread of the virus, and the resulting distress from lost wages, unemployment, and closures of educational and youth development programs have been, and in many cases continue to be very challenging for our city. It felt really important to acknowledge that COVID-19 has caused our city harm in this moment. Um, and so before moving on, I would like to ask for us to take a moment of silence in memory of the 74 Berkeley residents who lost their lives. Thank you for that. I will now turn the presentation over to Catherine Sullivan, the COVID-19 response coordinator, and she will provide us an update on the COVID-19 activities conducted in 2022 or since the last council presentation. Catherine? Good evening. Uh, during tonight's presentation on the city of Berkeley's response to COVID-19, uh, in the time period of November of 2021 through December of 2022, uh, we will provide an update on themes which have been discussed in previous years. Um, and those themes include COVID-19 testing, vaccines, disease containment, work with vulnerable populations, supporting schools, child cares, and youth settings, public information and outreach, community and business support, as well as cost recovery efforts. We will also speak to the end of California's state of emergency, the impact on our city's response and building resiliency as our community recovers from the COVID-19 pandemic. Next slide, please. Testing continues to be an essential tool in helping to slow the spread of COVID-19 in our community by identifying those who have the virus so they can get treatment when appropriate and isolate from others. During this time period, over 51,000 tests were administered at testing sites within the city of Berkeley. During this time period, we continue to coordinate free testing services through our partnerships with Curative and LHI Optum. In May of 2022, the LHI Optum testing sites transition from solely testing sites to test to treat sites, providing COVID-19 testing services and access to free COVID telehealth appointments and therapeutic treatments. In the winter of 2021, at-home testing kits became available for frontline workers, 
healthcare providers, and vulnerable populations. The city received our first allocation of at-home testing kits for community distribution in January of, 2020, of 2022. In partnership with community and faith-based organizations, in 2022, the city uh, distributed over 32,000, close to 33,000 at-home COVID-19 testing kits to community members. As the response and resources allocated to the COVID-19 pandemic continue to shift, our testing efforts have also shifted to meet the changing landscape and available resources. The testing site located at Berkeley Adult School, operated by Curative, demobilized in early December of 2022. The decision to close this testing site was made by Curative and was based on the decline in demand for out-of-home testing. The LHI Optum tested treat buses funded by the California Department of Public Health at Harold Way and Meyer Sound demobilized on Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. The tested treat bus, uh, which is located at San Pablo Park, will demobilize on Thursday, March 2nd. Uh, the state's decision to close the LHI Optum sites uh, was also based on the decline in demand for out-of-home testing. Um, to give a little bit of context, uh, this time last year, the, the average uh, test administered each day was a little over 2,000, and we um, are below administering 100 tests per day. The COVID-19 response unit will continue to partner with internal and external stakeholders to ensure all community members have access to free at-home testing kits, prioritizing community members who are experiencing homelessness, uninsured or underinsured, undocumented, and or face other barriers to accessing testing resources. Next slide, please. Getting vaccinated is the safest way to protect yourself and the community against the worst outcomes of COVID-19. As Dr. Hernandez previously stated, the city of Berkeley has one of the highest vaccination rates in California. Currently, 94% of all Berkeley residents have received their primary series, and 92% have received their first booster. All age groups are now eligible to receive their primary series, and indiv individuals five years old and above are eligible to receive their bivalent booster. Between November of 2021 and December of 2022, there were close to 10,000 doses administered at city-coordinated vaccine clinics. These events were held throughout the city, including uh, elementary and preschool sites, Berkeley Unified School District sites, the South Berkeley Library, uh, the Berkeley Recreation Centers, at community and faith-based organizations, at senior housing complexes, and at our Berkeley shelters. Next slide, please. As we continue to respond to COVID-19, it is critical that we center equity in our efforts to ensure access to vaccines, testing, treatment, and other infection control and healthcare measures. Although the city of Berkeley has one of the highest vaccination rates in California, we still have work to do reaching populations with lower vaccination rates. Currently, we are doing direct outreach to the following populations unvaccinated residents over the age of 75 who identify as African-American, Black, Asian, Hispanic, or Latino, 
specifically to residents over 75 who identify as Asian. The current vaccination rate for this population is 63.3%, and that's compared to an overall vaccination rate for this age group of 97.5%. Uh, we're also doing direct outreach to residents who identify as African American and or Black. The current vaccination rate for this population is 80% compared to the overall vaccination rate for the city of 94%. And the third group that we're doing direct outreach to are families with children under the age of five. Currently, only 40% of Berkeley residents under the age of five are fully vaccinated. Next slide, please. Disease containment. The D disease containment branch, which provides COVID-19 contact tracing and case investigation, continues to be a key component of our response efforts. During this time period, so between November of 2021 and December of 2022, there were over 18,000 positive cases confirmed within the city of Berkeley. This equates to 82% of all positive cases since the start of the pandemic. The disease containment team uh, was able to initiate outreach to almost 17,000 or 94% of all confirmed positive cases during this time period through virtual survey and or phone call. In comparison, the team initiated outreach to 2,800 positive cases during the previous year. Through their outreach efforts, the disease containment team provided guidance for isolation and quarantine, coordinated food deliveries for Berkeley residents in isolation, engaged in outreach efforts to inform previous unvaccinated cases about the city's vaccine incentive program and where to access free vaccines, and how to access free telehealth appointments and therapeutics through the state Sesame Care system uh, when testing positive for COVID. Additionally, the team provided guidance to 200 unduplicated exposure events and 350 unduplicated outbreaks. In Berkeley, this work has been conducted by public health nurses, a team of contact tracers, and state-deployed staff. The five state-deployed contact tracers will return to their assigned positions on March 10th of 2023. The city's team of contact tracer, tracers will be reduced from nine team members to two team members as of July 1st, 2023. The two remaining contact tracers are funded through the e ELC grant, which ends on June 30th, 2024. Next slide, please. The COVID Response Unit continues to provide support to vulnerable populations in partnership with Berkeley shelters and skilled nursing facilities. The team fulfilled resource requests by providing personal protective equipment and testing supplies, as well as providing ongoing technical assistance regarding changing COVID-19 guidance. During this time period, our team coordinated 11 mobile vaccine clinics at Berkeley shelters, where 200 and eight vaccine doses were administered. The current vaccination rate among Berkeley shelter residents is 71%, and 51% of residents have also received their first booster. 
During the winter surge in early 2022, the unhoused support team worked closely with the public health officer unit and Berkeley shelters to respond to multiple outbreaks and exposure events. Additionally, the unhoused support team distributed over 600 rapid antigen test kits to shelters to, res to support their COVID-19 response. The response unit and the unhoused support team have been working closely with the Berkeley shelters, Alameda County, and CDPH, the California Department of Public Health, to improve air quality and create isolation and quarantine spaces as the shelters begin to repopulate to their pre-COVID census. These efforts have included shelter site visits using updated COVID-19 guidance, assessing air ventilation, ordering and distributing air filters, and identifying on-site isolation spaces for future response to, co to positive COVID cases once the state of emergency is lifted on February 28th, the county's isolation and quarantine program will end. Next slide, please. During this reporting period, Berkeley Unified School District operated at full capacity for the first time since March of 2020. The return to in-person learning is essential in supporting our Berkeley youth as they work towards achieving positive academic, social, and emotional outcomes. It is also essential to building community resiliency as adult family members return in-person work outside of the home. The school's team continues to engage in ongoing coordination with Berkeley schools, child care centers, and youth settings, such as camps and out-of-school time programs, to maintain safe operations. This work includes updates on changes to guidance and support with local implementation. We continue to collaborate with Berkeley Unified School District to respond to positive cases and outbreaks and schedule community-based clinics with direct outreach to unvaccinated students and their families, as well as staff, students, and families in need of booster doses. The COVID response unit recognizes the interdependent relationship between the city and Berkeley Unified School District to reach all Berkeley youth and their families. We're confident the relationships and systems of communication with Berkeley Unified School District that have been developed over the past three years will support future collaboration and response efforts. Next slide, please. Generating clear, culturally responsive messaging continues to be an essential function of our city's COVID-19 response. Over the past three years, we've been creative in our methods for communicating with the public. These methods have included partnering with community-based organizations who are seen as trusted messengers to engage in door-knocking campaigns, community canvassing, and community education at local events. The Public Health Officer Unit has sent direct outreach to Berkeley seniors who identify as African-American, Black, Asian, Hispanic, or Latino through mailers and live operator calls, and has hosted in-person town hall meetings, including a town hall meeting this past summer at San Pablo Park with families enrolled in Head Start, WIC, and the Black Infant Health Program to invite, provide information about the efficacy and safety of the COVID-19 vaccine for our youngest residents. Um, to the, this past summer, we partnered with Berkeley Youth. Um, you'll see some images from this campaign on the right uh, to implement a social media and outdoor advertising campaign 
uh, encouraging young people to get vaccinated and boosted. And in October of 2022, we launched the Health Justice Internship Program, which provides up to 60 Berkeley youth ages 14 to 25 the opportunity to participate in a paid six-week internship focused on COVID-19 education, outreach, recovery, and resiliency efforts. Next slide, please. Uh, the pandemic has had widespread impacts on the economy and more severe prolonged impact in sectors such as the performing arts, tourism and hospitality, retail businesses and restaurants. During this reporting period, the city's Office of Economic Development continued to support local businesses as they recover from the impacts of the pandemic and build resiliency. 500,000 of American Rescue Plan Act dollars were allocated to visit Berkeley. 74 one-time grants were awarded to Berkeley arts organizations and festivals, and 114 grants were awarded to Berkeley-based artists cultural practitioners, makers, and teaching artists. These recovery efforts supported by the Office of Economic Development paired with a variety of other targeted business outreach, engagement, and assistance supports the city's strategic plan by advancing the goal to foster a dynamic, sustainable, and locally-based economy. I will now hand it back over to Dr. Varhus. Hi, so first I'll share not great news about cost recovery, and then I will share far better news. Um, as part of the EOC operations, uh, the city worked hard to um, submit a number of reimbursement requests uh, to FEMA. They began that very early on, and they submitted a total of 10 uh, packets of reimbursement requests. In February, uh, the, the specific re reimbursement request for the COVID-19 expansion of the shower program for unhosed community members valued at just under $65,000 was denied. And since that time, we have heard nothing um, from FEMA about the additional nine uh, reimbursement requests, and we are not particularly hopeful on that front. Uh, however, next slide, please. Um, sorry. In, instead of the FEMA reimbursement package that we had anticipated as a city and were very careful to make sure to follow the guidelines in case it was very significant, um, the city has actually received a total of $31,575,000 in one-time state and federal grants to support our COVID-19 response efforts. Um, Council will recall that in the HHCS uh, budget presentation for the uh, fiscal years 23-24 budget process, um, HHCS presented these numbers, which I will show in a moment on the next slide. Um, I will share that grant funds are expected to be fully expended by June 30th, 2024, at least at this time. And the city, we are not anticipating any new COVID-related revenue. Next slide, please. So um, 
as also evidence in our budget presentation of last year, there are basically five categories of COVID response funding. Um, equitable recovery, which is a California initiative really focused on equity overall and bringing continue to bring equity into the focus in public health work. Uh, 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 about uh, almost about a little over $12 million uh, went to the Housing and Community Services Division, um, where we basically helped to fund the uh, trailers, all of our efforts to decompress the shelters, identify new shelter sites, provide test kits, all of that work that Ms. Sullivan talked about around uh, supporting homeless shelters, um, that went to Housing and Community Services. That was about nearly half of the funds. Um, mental health was given a grant so that they could very rapidly trans transform all of their, a uh, lot of their mental health work um, to telehealth, although uh, the team has continued to be extremely active, providing in-person services to our most vulnerable community members, oftentimes out in the field. Um, but they do now also have improved capacity for telehealth. Um, and then all of the public health disease surveillance, prevention, vaccination, and response, that was approximately uh, $10 million, a little over $10 million. Um, and then finally, um, we're equating some of this uh, specialized care unit funding with um, the COVID response funding in part because uh, a lot of the effort to really bring forth the specialized care unit came deeply in the um, as we were still in the, in the midst of a major COVID response and seeing increased police violence in our community. Um, I am now gonna turn it back over to Dr. Hernandez who will talk about next steps. Thank you, Dr. Barhus. Um, as mentioned, both the federal and the state public health emergencies are going to be ending soon. And along um, with that, some of the resources that were provided during the emergency. That said, COVID will remain with us. And as we remain, as we continue to live with uh, the COVID um, virus, we must use the tools that we know work, vaccination and medications especially. And those uh, two tools are especially um, necessary uh, for communities that are more susceptible to the, to the severe impacts of COVID-19, such as those that are um, older and those with chronic, um, uh, chronic medical conditions. Um, as we move through uh, the next few months and years, um, we will um, shift, continue to shift our response to prevention. And we will um, continue to integrate um, many of the activities that we um, were um, um, doing in the COVID response unit, um, even um, in EOC into public health programs. Um, there will be uncertainty um, with COVID-19 as um, variants most likely will pop up again. Um, and we will assure you that we will continue to um, monitor this disease, and we stand ready and able to respond um, to this virus. Um, as you know, as you've heard today, um, we've uh, uh, mobilized and, um, and um, 
capitalized on um, relationships that we had and formed new relationships with uh, people, with uh, community members and uh, stakeholders in our community. And um, honestly, I will say that our community has been um, very receptive to science and has uh, been a strong partner with us as uh, we uh, endured this pandemic. I do want to um, uh, acknowledge um, certain individuals and certain com uh, community members for their support. First uh, and foremost, I want to um, acknowledge uh, the mayor and city council for your unwavering support. I have to read it because I um, wanna make sure that I say exactly how I feel. And um, I want to say that that continues to be critical to our success. Um, and I've said this in the past that um, as a public health jurisdiction with uh, such leadership um, in the city council and uh, with the mayor, we have um, been able to be um, as successful as we can because of um, the support of um, the leadership in the city. I would also like to thank city staff um, departments for their steadfast dedication and support as well. Um, we have also worked in partnership with our community partners and we are forever grateful to them and their names are listed um, on the slide. I want to say a special thank you to Dr. Varhus for her support and guidance and to the, the Madam City Manager for your constant trust in me throughout the pandemic, even when the unknown was even greater than what we are facing today. I will now hand it over to the city manager, Dee Williams-Ridley, to talk about administrative changes coming to the city, as well as to provide closing remarks. Thank you so much, Dr. Hernandez, and thank you, Dr. Barhus. Um, this, this team is amazing, and I could not be more proud of the work that they have done and the work of this organization. Um, we responded so well to this pandemic, and I'm very, very proud of all of our efforts, the changes, everything that we've had to walk through. The staff of this organization have also, they've just risen to the occasion, and they've managed this pandemic so well very proud of all of our employees within the city of Berkeley. Um, I do want to update on just a few things around administrative changes that will be happening as a result of COVID-19 protocols. So effective March 1st of this year, the following changes will take place. Masking inside city buildings and vehicles will be strongly encouraged, but they will not be required. The exception will be that we'll continue to mandate masking in all physical and mental health clinics per the state of California's order. Employee vaccination or testing will no longer be required as a condition of employment. And staying home sick will still be expected of all of our employees and the public. Please stay home if you are ill. We will encourage patrons of the city buildings to do the same. So anyone visiting our city facilities, and coming to um, participate in their civic work within the organization, please remain home if you're ill. You can also mask if you but effective March 1st, these changes will go into effect. I wanna thank the council for your time this evening, for allowing us to present on our response to COVID-19 
and we look forward to any questions that you may have and the team is ready and here to answer any of your questions. Thank you so much, Mr. Mayor and Council. I'll turn it back over to you, Mayor. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much for this presentation, which I think comes at a really important moment. Um, the governor announced that the state emergency is going to expire on February 28th, next Tuesday. And the next Tuesday, we're going to meet to consider the termination of our local emergency. Um, and I think when this pandemic started, many of us thought that it was only going to be a few weeks. Um, and now, almost three years later, we're at this moment, which is really due to the hard work of all of the leaders here, um, the city manager, the public health officer. And I just want to just acknowledge that um, public health officers from throughout the, the country faced enormous scrutiny um, and pressure, but we were so fortunate to have such an incredible professional leader in Dr. Hernandez who helped guide our city through this, I, I would say one of the most difficult moments in our city's history. And we have to recognize that there's been a lot of pain and suffering that our community and cities throughout the, the world have experienced due to this pandemic. Um, businesses closed, people lost their jobs, people became homeless. But if it wasn't for the leaders here, this council, and us acting very quickly, putting the shelter-in-place order in effect, having our own public health department, which gave us the ability to tailor our own local response, um, and then the actions we took at that last meeting before the, before the shelter-in-place order took effect to launch the Berkeley Relief Fund, to put our eviction moratorium in place, um, I think we'd be in a very different situation. And I just have to really thank the people of Berkeley for their support and commitment and resilience over the past three years. And we're fortunate to live in a city where our community not only follows science, but really rallied to support each other and the most vulnerable. And that's why we have a 94% vaccination rate and 42% uh, bivalent booster rate, one of the highest in the United States. And I, I don't think we get enough credit, frankly, for being one of the best cities in terms of our COVID response in the United States. But we know on the ground that that has saved lives. And I'm just so honored to be part of the city government, this organization, um, and just grateful for our city staff, the leaders here, and the hundreds of city employees who stepped into um, our pandemic response, our first responders, our public health staff, and people from every department, parks, public works, City, city, city manager's office, people that leaned into roles that they didn't necessarily sign up for, but recognize that they have a responsibility to help support this unprecedented emergency response. And I just want to also just recognize our former deputy city manager, Paul Budenhagen, who was the manager of our EOC, who worked in partnership with our city manager to help lead this effort. So I'm really grateful for this update. Um, I encourage my colleagues to share this with your constituents, particularly as we're reaching this milestone of the end of our local emergency to highlight the work and the progress that we've made. COVID's not over, it's still out there. It still poses a risk to our community. But I think because of our high vaccination rate, because of the work we've done to implement and follow these public health measures, that we've done better than many other cities here in Alameda County to help manage this crisis. And I'm confident that this, um, this, this very difficult part of our history has better prepared us to respond to emergencies in the future. And I think that's one thing I know, there's been a lot of, I've talked to the city manager about this, a lot of reflection and consideration of 
how we're able to mobilize and respond rapidly to an emergency, an evolving emergency, and we know that, um, that emergencies will happen. And I think this has made our organization more flexible and nimble and resilient. Um, and obviously, it's changed the way that we live. It's changed the way that we work. And there's really no going back. It's a question of how we move forward. And I think we, we need to chart that path forward, one that is um, equitable, resilient. And I think that's the work we all have, the collective work we have um, in the coming weeks and months. So um, with that, I want to turn it over to my colleagues and just express my deepest gratitude to all of our leaders here for all your work and to the people of Berkeley for your steadfast commitment um, to, our, to our city, to following science, and to protecting the health and safety of everyone in the city of Berkeley. So with that, I want to now turn the floor over to Councilor Hong. Well, thank you very much, Mayor, and I certainly join myself to all of the Mayor's comments. I want to thank the city manager and staff first for putting this report together. The amount of work for our city team to respond to the COVID crisis, all the impact, can be easy to overlook. And despite the enormous lift and the, the fatigue of our staff, I felt it was very important for the city manager and the city team to provide us with yet another report, a report of the truly heroic work that our city has done, um, but it has been a lot of work. And it's extra work to then write a report about it and present it to us. So I really want to thank the city manager and all team for the extra effort that it takes to bring this all together. I think it's very important for us to, to document not just when things go wrong, and a lot did go wrong <laughs> these last few years, not by our doing, but we really do need to document um, when our city has done something truly heroic, and we need to take the time to recognize and appreciate the truly extraordinary work of our staff at every level of the organization. I hesitate to call out names or departments because I know that every single person and every department in our city and in our sister agencies, the US City, the libraries, the rent board, the entire government of Berkeley worked overtime under extreme conditions to meet the multifaceted demands of the pandemic. Still, I do want to thank the city manager, former deputy city manager, Paul Budenhagen, Dr. Lisa Hernandez, a, a truly modest, unsung hero, not just for Berkeley, but for the Bay Area, and an example for the nation. And of course, Dr. Varhus for their leadership. I wanna also call out and thank the frontline workers in every department who have risked their lives to continue providing services to our community. <clears throat> I think it's easy to forget that when the pandemic began, we didn't know if picking up garbage would transmit this unknown virus. Yet, we did the best we could to provide safety precautions and our refuse workers went out every day and picked up refuse 
that might have gotten them sick. And I think we have to remember that it is every single individual in this organization who made an effort far beyond what is is required of them and their already difficult jobs. Building inspectors who went out to site to make sure that housing could continue being built. And of course, all who reached out and worked with our homeless and other vulnerable populations on a face-to-face, one-on-one basis throughout the pandemic. I also want a special shout out to police and fire, our first responders who, who I, I don't even need to enumerate what they've done, but every single day throughout this pandemic, they have provided great service to the community. So where are we now? Soon after the pandemic, I authored an item asking staff to create specific plans to meet the needs of vulnerable populations. And staff has been persistent in their work to ensure that hard to reach and vulnerable populations needs are met. And that is part of why we've been so successful. This work will continue. Disparities based on race and economic status existed before the pandemic, but the truly cruel and unjust impact have been graphically displayed in the statistics that were shared with us tonight and throughout the pandemic. Our work to provide better baseline health and better outcomes from this pandemic must and will continue. I also am concerned about people with underlying conditions, how they will navigate a more complex safety environment. We need to consider and make plans for keeping these individuals safe in a new era. I'm also mindful of the mental health crisis that impacts many young people, that people at every age in our community, and also the impacts of long COVID, which 10 to 20% of people who've had COVID, whether a mild or severe case, are developing. So those are health challenges that I think we need to pay attention to going forward. But there's also areas we really need to continue addressing. Housing insecurity. Our eviction moratorium will end soon. That is a looming cliff. The four by four has taken this topic up and is discussing ways to provide a soft landing and to provide wraparound services to people who may experience housing insecurity as we end the the emergency acute phase of the pandemic response. Financial crisis, personal financial crisis, because the, the debt of unpaid rent will actually come due for many people assistance with that and potentially even sadly assistance with bankruptcy. I think we need to look at that whole area very carefully and and plan around it. Our businesses and organizations, our preschools and schools were hit very hard. They're still recovering. I think we need to be very mindful in addressing their issues. And then the city, the city itself, our financial situation, building back our tax base, building back our reserves, balancing our budgets without the benefit of the federal uh, federal dollars that, that came in, how we support our staff filling the open positions, 
and most importantly, how we continue to show our gratitude. So with that, I open and close with my deep gratitude. Thank you for the work of this year, of the past three years, and thank you for the report. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll go next to Council Member Wangraff. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I, I just want to say thank you to to everybody who was involved. I'm so proud of the way that this city responded. Um, from the very beginning, everybody was a team working together. At least that's the way it appeared to me. Fire went out and set up all of the the vaccination sites and the testing sites and and Dr. Hernandez and Dr. Barhus were right there telling us exactly what was going on. Uh, we had weekly meetings. I don't know if you remember that, but, you know, we were, I just felt like this city came together and we were a team working together and it paid off. And, and so um, I, I just want to say thank you to everybody, uh, including the fire department. I don't know if they're on the call tonight, but they just did an extraordinary job early on and, and led the way for us. Um, with that, I have some questions. I don't know if this is the time for questions, but I would like to share the report with my constituents. And one thing I would like to tell them, since I know we're shutting down the testing sites, is where will people be able to get PCR tests in the future? Um, if they if they feel they need them, I think that's you know information that we need to be giving out to people. And I also have a question about a third booster, and if Dr. Hernandez knows anything about the possibility of people getting third boosters. I myself got my second booster in September, and so by now it's worn off. And um, I'd love to get a third booster, but they, they're not available. So um, if Dr. Hernandez has any information about that, I'd be very, very appreciative. And one more thing, I want to thank Dee, um, the city manager, for her leadership throughout this entire process. She was right there at the helm and pulling it all together. And um, it just gives me great pride in the city. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so... Uh... Dr. Hernandez or Dr. Varhus, um, Council Member Gaff had a few questions. Um, if you have any information to share, I'm sure we, we would love to hear your um, responses. Sure, I'll start with the uh, booster question. Uh, my crystal ball is cloudy, um, but honestly, I uh, the CDC is is discussing about is discussing uh, what their recommendations are going to be about how they're going to manage booster recommendations moving forward. Um, and I believe that we should hear something um, in the next month, which is only a little bit over 10 days or a few days away. So um, I'm hoping in March we'll hear something about what their recommendation is going to be moving forward. That said, um, I think individuals that um, uh, are concerned about um, their boosters could, uh, should reach out to their medical providers to see what recommendations they have um, in terms of um, whether they need a, an additional boost or not. Um, 
So that's that's what I would say. We, what I imagine is going to happen is that we're going to see a, a new formulation of um, the vaccine as variants um, may pop up. Um, right now, the booster that exists, the bivalent booster, is providing uh, strong protection. So I, I don't think that's going to happen um, in the near future. But I do think that that's going to be their um, their uh, plan moving forward. Um, in terms of PCR testing, um, pretty much um, primary care providers um, can do testing. Um, they're also the tests are also available um, by I believe at, at pharmacies as well, um, and they are uh, also. Uh, we know that we have antigen tests that are also covered um, by insurances as well, and we have an ample supply that we're providing to other, um, to our community-based organizations, churches. Um, um, we actually give out um, the antigen tests at our vital records, at um, other places, our mental health clinics, so they're available throughout um, the city. Um, but PCR testing is available um, through uh, medical providers primarily and is reimbursed by everyone's insurance. Um, I don't know if um, anyone wants to add to that, um, Dr. Varhus or, or Catherine. I, I think you've pretty much covered that in terms of, of where testing will be available once the, the sites close. Thank you. Okay, thank you. We'll go next to Vice Mayor Bartlett, followed by Council Member Humbert. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. And uh, I'll, be, I'll be brief, but um, I just want to just take a second and again, thank uh, people here with us today, the wonderful leadership of uh, the Madam City Manager uh, and Dr. Hernandez. I think you came and joined us right in the beginning of this stuff, right? And uh, you, you, you'd already been here a year before? Been here five years. <laughs> oh, wow. It was Dr. Barhus. Dr. The other Lisa. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, you, you know, the COVID effect in the brain causes time to move faster for the for the viewer. So I long COVID. Um <laughs> long time COVID. Uh and Dr. Varhus, uh wonderful, excellent work. And you're right how this centered our attentions on the underlying health disparities and health inequities that we've talked about for years and and triggered some new actions to address it. Uh, and the mayor, of course, stepping in um, is in every single way possible, and my colleagues as well. Uh, and then the community members as well, they, they stepped in and they helped each other. Um, I saw the signs everywhere for, um, you know, do you need this help, that help? I want to thank my staff in particular for stepping up to deliver food um, on multiple, multiple occasions to seniors who were uh, in my district and in other districts as well. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we also stepped up into a big fundraiser and got uh, PPP um, to Alta Bates, to the nurse crew over there. So um, I do want to say that, you know, having having traveled a bunch and having talked to many other jurisdictions over the last couple of years, um, I, our response as a city, and, um, you know, thank you again to our leadership here, uh, is among the best in the nation. And I really think that you as, as executives of the city uh, need to take credit for that. You need to share your lessons with other jurisdictions around the world um, and, and become the face of your success because uh, our health is, um, 
in no small regard, thanks to your efforts. And so I appreciate you. And I thank you on behalf of so many people. Thank you very much. We'll go next to council member Humbert. Yeah, <clears throat> I have a couple of questions and maybe one comment, but first I, you know, I'm, I'm new as a council member. So I, I did not participate in this effort um, starting in, in 2020, but I want to express my profound gratitude to Dr. Varhus, Dr. Hernandez, their staffs, the city manager, D. Williams Ridley and her staff, to Mayor Aragin, my fellow council members and former council member Drosty, and of course the rest of our Berkeley city employees and staff, including police and fire for the serious, really serious and difficult work you've done to keep me and my family safe and the residents and visitors to our city safe as well during this pandemic. It's been a spectacular success and relative to, you know, a lot of other cities in the rest of the country. Um, Berkeley has an amazing record in terms of vaccination rates and keeping Berkeley in safe and well. I, of course, mourn the loss of the residents who died of this terrible disease and really appreciate that we've observed a moment of silence here today uh, in their memories. Um, my first question is um, about the, the bivalent um, booster. The, the initial booster rates seem really good in comparison. Um, bivalent is only, uh, booster rate is only 42%. And I guess I wonder why that is. Maybe that's, I, I think that's a national issue as well, but what can we do to encourage Berkeleyans to continue to get vaccinated as boosters, new boosters are released? And I guess this would be directed to the two doctors if they have ideas. I can answer um, the first part. I think people are tired of getting vaccinated. Um, that while, while I agree our, our numbers, our vaccination rate is low. It is um, a lot better than um, even in the county overall. Um, the state uh, vaccination rate for bivalent is at like 24%, 25%, and we're at 42%. Um, the county, I think, is like at 32 34%. Um, in terms of their bivalent booster, so they they're lower too. So I think overall in in um, in the state, probably nationally, there's fatigue um, yeah. in terms of of getting um, vaccinated and 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 um, trying to be as protective as possible. Um, that said, we know that this vaccine, this bivalent vaccine, uh, provides excellent coverage and is very protective and also uh, for for infection as well as severe disease. So I, we, we continue as, as um, Ms. Sullivan uh, presented about our vaccination efforts. Um, we offer the vaccine, you know, the, all vaccines. We, we back, whether you're coming for your first shot or for your, your booster, um, we are there and available and we continue to, um, to provide that access um, for our community. And um, it's it's a hard sell though, as um, because of, of that fatigue. Um, and in time, people will will get vaccinated. Everyone has a different um, reason for delaying the vaccine. Um, and I think we'll see we'll, we'll continue to see 
um, vaccination happening is just going to be at a slower rate. Um, I don't know, Dr. Varhus, if you wanted to add anything um, to that. No, I think that uh, you covered it. I mean, I will just say we will be persistent, so we will continue um, our outreach efforts. Um, and then, you know, as Dr. Hernandez said uh, earlier, the CDC is talking about when people should get their next one. At some point, there may be a new variant that leads to a new vaccine. So we'll just continue to be on top of it as much as we can. Um, with the majority of our outreach uh, efforts really looking for supporting those who in general have been less vaccinated than other groups. Um, Robert, you, you also asked what could you, what could we what could you do? Um, one of the things that's been very, very helpful um, for us um, as leaders here in the city and in putting word out is having council also share through your newsletters as information becomes available. So as more information becomes available with any new vaccination or any new information or locations where people can go, um, the more you all help us to get that word out, the more it reaches um, the people within our community. So that's one thing. Um, and then when you hear things in the community that there are questions, send them our way so that we can be responsive for folks and make sure that they have the most up-to-date information. Those are the two things I would say can be done to help and assist. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And then um, I, some of the other questions I had have already been asked and answered. And this one, maybe nobody knows the answer to. Um, why do we think our FEMA application, the one was denied and the rest have been ignored? Is there any sense of the reasons for that? If not, you know. Um, I, my understanding is that the the one that they looked at was related to our portable shower and facilities program, which, you know, as part of the pandemic, we had a vulnerable populations team that really worked to, like, increase shower accessibility and availability to people who may have been, you know, displaced out of shelter um, and invested quite a bit in porta potties and other things. And uh, I think the response generally was, well, this is part of your normal operations. Um, yeah. And we don't know why they haven't looked at the other nine. I imagine much of the country is in the similar situation. Um, those grants have been exceedingly very, very helpful in funding our response. Um, resources could always be, you know, there can always be more resources, but we will, we have been, uh, we're very lucky to have uh, had access to those funds for our response. Yeah, I would, I would agree with Dr. Barhus that the $31 million that the city received was clearly an indication from the state and feds that, hey, we're providing you with this money and resources. Um, and so we've looked at um, the staffing around it, right? So a lot of the remaining um, requests for for uh, for money from FEMA is around the resources of people. Right? So was it overtime? Is it outside of our normal day to day? Um, so hopefully we'll see some return there, but we we are we're we're not sure. <laughs> we'll wait for it. Okay, thank you so much. That's all I have. 
Thank you. Councilmember Robinson. From the bottom of my heart, you are each of you heroes to me. And I know that this council and this community will never be able to thank you enough for your leadership of this organization through the pandemic. Uh, it's, y'all yeah, admit, not entirely easy to revisit the atmosphere of those first weeks and months. I, uh, I remember that feeling on the first calls I had with Dee where it started to click that something was really about to change the world as we know it and the uh, the atmosphere on the ground at the Herculean effort that was our, our mass uh, vaccination sites at uh, Golden Gate Fields, the atmosphere in grocery stores and going on grocery runs for seniors who didn't feel safe going out themselves to the mutual aid network. It was it was a incredible and traumatic chapter of our history. And while we talk a lot about our successes, I really want to thank you for highlighting in this presentation and discussion the loss. We have all experienced loss. We lost community members. We lost connection with each other. We lost much of our day-to-day -day routine. There's so much that we lost. Uh, and we can never lose sight of that, even as we talk about our wins. Um, I want to ask her a suggestion for you. I think maybe this uh, could be relevant for a similar report, perhaps a year from now. I would be really interested to see if it's possible uh, to aggregate and synthesize together some sort of summary of all the different ways that day-to-day -day operations have changed for the better as a result of the differences of the last couple of years. We had to do so many things differently. And I think sometimes we discovered we were actually forced to innovate uh, and do things better. Of course, the fact that we'll retain Zoom access to council meetings after next week is one tiny example of that. Uh, but if that's something that uh, departments have been able to keep track of, there are other ways that basic service delivery has evolved during the pandemic. I think that would be really interesting to put in one place that we can learn from. Thank you. Thank you, um, Councilmember Robinson. I think one of the one of the ways that we'll be able to capture that is as we move into this employer of choice initiative and the work that's going to be coming before you at a later time. Um, but we're going to be planning to give you regular updates. But a lot of that is why a lot of our employees are still here today because there's been this new change and this resilience and a different way of leading and working. So, um, yes, we will include that in our narrative as we move forward under that, um, under that subject. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Seeing other council members that wish to speak on this item at this time, we'll now take public comment on item one, uh, the presentation on the City of Berkeley's COVID response, a 2022 summary report. If there's any attendee that wishes to speak, please raise your hand. Um, let me first ask, is there anyone here in the boardroom at 1231 Addison that would like to speak on this item? Okay, if not, then I'd like to ask, are there any attendees on Zoom that wish to speak? If so, please raise your hand. And we'll first go to Kelly Hammergren. And uh, you should now be able to speak. Please go ahead. Okay, thank you. And are you getting an echo or is this okay? No, sounds good. Okay, good. All right, so Dr. Hernandez, uh, you said that you were taking actions for prevention, but you didn't say what those actions were. And I was curious about what um, what actions could be for prevention when um, masking is no longer required and uh, COVID's airborne. I mean, that's how we get it, it's, it's airborne. 
Um, so the main things for prevention are masking and air circulation. And, um, and so that was my um, major question. And while you said that we're doing better than other counties and other areas in the rest of the state with 42% of people um, getting the bivalent vaccination booster. Um, I still found that a very disappointing number. And uh, I was looking through my journals and announcements and um you know, there's still articles saying that um, by being vaccinated, that reduces major cardiac events, major heart events like heart heart attacks and strokes. Um, so I I think it's concerning that we're still only at at 42 percent. Um, so. Um, those were kind of my main comments, and we heard discussion of um, the efforts to improve vaccination, but we didn't really hear um, how that was turning out, what what the effect of those efforts were. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Moni Law. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you, Mayor and Council. Um, a couple of quick concerns. Um, thank you to the staff and the council, the mayor, the city manager's office, the uh, Dr. Warhu's office and staff, and Dr. Hernandez. Um, one point I'm always concerned about is the number of city employees who continue to test negative or positive for COVID. Many, as you know, 85% approximately of city employees do not live in Berkeley. And I believe it was confirmed by Dr. Hernandez in a prior meeting that those numbers only reflect on our dashboard for this website, the city, those who are residents in Berkeley. So that is sort of underreported in terms of the number that we actually have. Secondly, I'm concerned that I'm privileged to have Kaiser and other options available to get testing, but those pop-up clinics were really helpful. I remember Dr. Hernandez actually staffing one of the initial And I was able. Uh, Moni, you're cutting out, unfortunately. Are you there? Why don't you try muting your microphone and unmuting? Um, the third concern I have with respect to the masking, as was brought by the prior speaker is that if we don't require masks, city employees are going to be more exposed to people bringing in COVID to them. We, um, I personally wear mine when I'm at work, but I am concerned that that still provides risk to us as employees being exposed. The final concern I have um, as far as housing and issues of um, people being on the street, when the COVID moratorium ends, we're going to have havoc and needing more uh, services. One particular missing piece the missing middle are the women with children who have no emergency shelter at all. Um, hopefully that is being looked at at the West Berkeley Senior Center, although I believe there's some other services being looked at there. The Oxford School that's um, closed is looking to be reopened. And uh, Councilmember Hahn is having meetings around that. 
But we have a lot of uh, unmet need, I'm afraid, that's going to open up a big hole when um, COVID services disappear. Um, FEMA-wise, I hope we get more uh, resources there as well. Thank you. Thank you. We'll go next to Christina Murphy, followed by Ayana Davis. And those are the last two raised hands to speak on the side. Uh, thank you, Mayor and City Council. Um, I just wanted to share some concern that um, I, under, I always get nervous when we talk about data and numbers uh, because there's uh, a large group of people that are uh, under the radar or underserved and don't fit into the cookie cut to even get into the data or the survey. But what I'm concerned more about is that the numbers are going down with COVID. But me working in homeless, I'm noticing that I've came across more seniors and more people on the street with MRSA. I don't know if you guys know what MRSA is, but um, that's a serious infection. And um, it's really serious when you're homeless and you have nowhere to recuperate. Uh, you can only go to the, uh, the, the centers to get well if you have COVID. But if you, and if they're full, you can't go. But if you don't have COVID, where can you go to get healed from MRSA? I also am someone that has caught COVID, but I also have all my vaccinations and I still caught COVID, but I also just caught um, URI, which is upper re uh, URI, upper respiratory infection. We have a lot of people on the street that have compromising immune systems for whatever the reason is, high blood pressure, diabetes, seniors, cancer, uh, stage four cancer. And that upper respiratory infection was so nasty. Like I had so much mucus and it's been three weeks and I'm still blowing my nose and stuff. So my concern is that we have a few porta potties, but we don't have hand washing stations. I'm really worried that we don't have a place for people to just go walk up and wash their hands. That's like where the main germ comes from their hands to their mouth, and then they touch stuff, and then it's passed on. I also, in my last eight minutes, want to say I'm so grateful and happy that I got a chance to go in the Hope Center. That is a beautiful, 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 beautiful service. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll go next to Ayana Davis, followed by former council member Cheryl Davila. I would just like to thank the... Um, Department, Berkeley Department of Health staff for all of the work that they have done over these past three years. So much of it was amazing. And I can only imagine and do know how much it took to keep things going um, during this time period. I too would like to express some of the concerns around um, when the emergency is lifted and any gaps in services, in particular for mental health for our community. We know that there have been some mental health issues. Um, our students in the schools need increased mental health services, and our um, community, unhoused community, is definitely in need of increased services. And at Healthy Black Families, we have um, our, our moms with children underwent a lot of stress and trauma during COVID, not just from loss, but being sheltered in place for so long um, and uh, loss of resources and money and jobs, access to um, food and sundries. All of these things played a part in the 
increased stress. So we really encourage um, community, you, this city to increase our monies for community services and mental health services for moms. I tried to refer, refer a mom to the Berkeley Drop-In Center for Women and Children and found that there were services that were not available because they are understaffed. And that is one of the major things that I would encourage the city to do, to be visionary in what the needs are and take care of things as soon as possible so we don't move into crisis. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Okay, we'll go next to former city councilor Cheryl Davila, and that is the last raised hand to speak on item one. Well, thank you. Um, so COVID clearly isn't over, and that concerns me that, you know, all these things are getting lifted. So I would hope that, you know, Berkeley would be the, you know, take all that into consideration because I feel like people, I see people on the street coughing, not cough, just coughing out like walking with their little kid and their kids coughing really a lot, not covering their mouth, not coughing into their elbow. Maybe we need some more education on how they should do things like that and wear a mask if you're, you know, have a cough or you're sick or whatever. Um, it, and then like, what are you going to do to eliminate the disparities um, which aren't just uh, restricted to COVID? There's been health disparities uh, for quite some time in Berkeley, um, but it is uh, exponentially impacting the Black and Brown, Indigenous and people of color. So I was curious as to how that is going to be handled. And um, Christina Murphy talked about MRSA. MRSA is a highly, super highly infectious disease. And the, the people with MRSA really should be isolated and getting treatment for MRSA. So that really needs to be addressed. And, you know, it would be nice if we could have bathrooms throughout the city or just like sinks with warm water randomly, like a fountain. Um, you know, they have water fountains, um, but could you have sink kind of fountains with soap that has real water that's not being recycled water that happens with porta potties and porta sinks. So um yeah and happy Fat Tuesday. Thank you. Thank you. I don't see any other attendees with the hands raised to speak on item one, the COVID-19 response 2022 summary report. So we'll close public comment and bring it back to the city council ask are there any other questions or comments before we conclude. Okay, seeing none, um, once again, thank you very much to Dr. Hernandez and Dr. Varhus for the, for the report. And uh, would encourage my colleagues to, to share this information with our constituents around the work that's been done. Obviously, COVID's still with us. We need to be vigilant, but this really does come at, I think, a critical point in this um, pandemic as we are moving from an emergency phase to a endemic phase. And um, there are obviously actions we'll discuss next Tuesday relative to the uh, local state of emergency. So um, thank you very much for this presentation. Okay, we have one more raised hand. This is the last speaker. 
um, unless there's anyone else that wishes to speak on public comment. Carol Morosevic, I believe, please press star six to unmute. Um, thank you for recognizing me, uh, Mayor. Um, well, when Dr. Hernandez states that we need to refer to the medical providers, I have some concern because this is such a major issue in our communities that we need to make sure that people are accessing their medical providers and their medical providers are responding. Uh, second, it, it's great that the city council meetings are doing the meetings hybrid because uh, it, it does encourage public participation and it does also uh, respond to those council members who are concerned because of their vulnerabilities about COVID. Uh, but that isn't the case with the commissions. And I know the city clerk has consistently taken the position that they can't do hybrid. I personally am looking forward to meeting in person because I've had tech difficulties. However, many people don't feel as comfortable. They do feel the same medical vulnerabilities that the council members do. In addition, through Zoom, our commission meetings at the Homeless Services Panel of Experts have had uh, a fairly significant number of people attending. There was one meeting where there were 17 members of the public that attended at various times, and that's no longer going to be available now that we're in person. So it is unfortunate that uh, commission meetings also couldn't have been hybrid. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Seeing no additional public comment, I'd like to once again ask, are there any further questions or comments from city council members on this report? Seeing none, thank you once again, and we'll proceed to the next agenda item, uh, which is item two, referral response, affordable housing preference policy for rental housing. And um, uh, Dr. Dr. Varhus, um, will you be opening on this item? I defer to the city manager, but I'll I'll say I'll go ahead and do so. Yes, thank you. Yes, Dr. Varhus, um, please open for us. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, good evening again, uh, Mayor, Council, and the public. Um, we have a PowerPoint presentation to share. Um, if we can get that loaded up, I believe the person running that is Anna Cash. Here we go. And if we can get it in presentation mode, perfect. Okay, so mayor and council tonight, we will we are seeking your feedback uh, and your guidance around uh, the development of a new affordable, <clears throat> sorry, a, a new affordable, um, a new housing preference policy for Berkeley. Um, presenting tonight um, from the Housing and Community Services Division of HHCS will be Anna Cash, who has been working tirelessly on this uh, preference policy with the community over the past uh, two and a half years. She came to us first as a fellow, and now I'm really pleased that she has now become a community uh, development project coordinator here um, in HCS, and we're lucky to have her. Um, assisting her will also be Mike Uberti, also um, with the Housing and Community Services Division. And we will be co-presenting as well with 
healthy Black families who we've already heard from tonight. Um, and so it will be a joint um, presentation. So I will start by taking it over to Anna. Thank you, Dr. Varhus. Good evening, Mayor and members of the City Council. My name is Anna Cash, and I'm a Community Development Project Coordinator in the Housing and Community Services Division of Health, Housing, and Community Services. I was also a Partnership for the Bay's Future Fellow working on this policy from 2020 to 2022, and Senior Community Development Project Coordinator Mike Uberti is also here tonight to answer questions. I will be giving an overview of the policy and the policy process thus far, then turning it over to the core community partner on this work, Healthy Black Families, to discuss community engagement. Following their presentation, I will give an overview of the policy proposal, specific policy options for you to consider, and some information on implementation, closing out with next steps. So I want to start off by explaining what an affordable housing preference policy is and what it seeks to accomplish. So a housing preference policy will assist people who have faced or are facing displacement in Berkeley to receive priority for new affordable housing units. Typically, new units can receive thousands of applications. Through the Housing Trust Fund, the city helps support Jordan Court, which is 34 units of senior housing in North Berkeley that opened in 2022. And that project received over 1,000 applications for 34 units. A preference policy will assign points based on specific criteria or preferences, which are used to reprioritize lottery results. It would not apply to 100% of new affordable housing units, which I'll discuss more later on. So first of all, what are we doing here tonight? We're first going to give an update on the work thus far. So that includes a community-engaged policy development process, and recommendations for preference categories that have come out of that process. And we're coming to council tonight so that you all can weigh in on which preference categories to include in the policy. First, we'll discuss where we've been and what is leading up to this work session. So this proposal builds on years of community engagement. Over the past several years, multiple community-based organizations in Berkeley have called for a housing preference policy to help address gentrification and displacement in Berkeley, particularly from the African-American community in South Berkeley. Coming out of that, there have been referrals, including council making two separate referrals to develop preference policies, and preferences were also acknowledged in the Adeline Corridor Specific Plan and the Joint Vision and Priority Statement for the BART sites. And in 2020, with the support of the mayor and council members Bartlett and Harrison, the city began the Partnership for the Bay's Future Challenge Grant with a focus on developing a housing preference policy rooted in community engagement and research. Community engagement activities led by Healthy Black Families and East Bay Community Law Center included a community leaders group, outreach, and two surveys. All of this engagement culminated in recommendations for six preference categories and these recommendations were drafted by staff based on the engagement and supported by the community leaders group. The policy was then brought to the Housing Advisory Commission for their recommendations, at which point they recommended one additional preference category for a total of seven preference categories, which we will be asking you to weigh in on tonight. 
So this evening, we're coming to you with those recommendations for preferences so that council can weigh in on which preferences to move forward as part of the policy. Staff will then develop the policy and implementation plan based on this guidance and bring it to council this summer for adoption. I'll talk more later in the presentation about what happens after that in terms of implementation. So I'll preview those recommendations for preferences now, and then we'll discuss them in more depth later in the presentation. The preferences include a first priority for displacement due to construction of the BART stations in Berkeley, a preference for displacement due to eviction, a preference for families with children, a preference for those who have been displaced due to foreclosure, a preference for those who are homeless or at risk of homelessness, a preference for those with ties to redlined areas, and a preference for those with historical ties to redlined areas. Now we're going to have a presentation by our core community partner on the housing preference policy, Healthy Black Families. Healthy Black Families is a South Berkeley-based nonprofit organization that is focused on advancing social equity and justice with a focus on Black individuals and families. During the Partnership for the Bay's Future Challenge Grant, we worked with Healthy Black Families and East Bay Community Law Center on the housing preference policy, community-engaged policy development process. Healthy Black Families is also the lead partner on the current Partnership for the Bay's Future Grant, the Breakthrough Grant, which is focused on equity for Black Berkeley, especially as it relates to plans for Ashby BART. Tonight, we'll hear from Executive Director Wilhelmina Wilson and Deputy Executive Director of Policy Advocacy and Program Governance, Ayanna Davis. So, Ms. Wilson and Ms. Davis, I will pass it to you now and uh, stop sharing screen so that you can take it from here. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Anna. Let me get my screen up. And thank you, Council, for invitation um, <clears throat> to be here. Yes, greetings this evening to the mayor and the city council. Um, my name is Wilhelmina Wilson and I'm in the executive director at Healthy Black Families. And I'm also um, pleased and always privileged to be in the presence of Ayanna Davis, who is our deputy executive director in charge of programs, policy and program governance. Um, tonight, we'll bring to you a short presentation on our work and perspective on the affordable housing preference policy um, and let's get started. Um, Anna introduced a bit about our uh, mission and vision, but at Healthy Black Families, um, our mission is to provide people with knowledge, skills, and strategies to make social systems and policies more equitable for Black people and communities. Um, as we've seen through the history of our nation um, and civil rights legislation, when Black people rise and the least of those are served in equitable ways, it inures to the benefit of all in the community. Um, our vision is to accomplish this mission. Um, we organize individuals, families, and the organizations that serve them into communities empowered with skills to advance social equity and justice. And again, our focus is on Black individuals and families. Um, I we just wanted to bring before the council a few of our core values. Um, these are our grounding point at Healthy Black Families and also our accountability to community. 
Um, our primary um, overarching value at Healthy Black Families is human dignity. And by this, we mean we are conscious of and actively support the basic right of every human being to have respect and to have their basic needs met so that each person has an opportunity to develop their full potential. Health and healing is our second core value. And through this, we promote the wisdom of mind and body soundness that flows from meeting spiritual, emotional, and physical needs, a holistic approach through self-awareness and preventive discipline. This includes an understanding that knowledge of self allows for maintenance of internal balance that promotes positive feeling and again, health and healing. And then community, we foster depth and commitment as we engage people individually and in groups. And our objective is to ensure that both independent creativity and interdependent cooperation are maximized. We move in strategic unity. Um, I'll turn it over now to Mama Ayana to talk a little bit about our advocacy history. The Berkeley Black and African American community, including leadership from Healthy Black Families and other community-based organizations, have been resisting displacement and advocating for housing preference and preservation policies that include the right to stay, right to return, and right to own for many years. In 2015, Healthy Black Families began advocating for reparations and the right to return for displaced community members in conversations with city leaders and in collaboration with community organizations and members, such as Friends of Adeline, African American Holistic Resource Center, NAACP, and the Berkeley Black Ecumenical Ministers Alliance, and others. This history of displacement in the city of Berkeley, um, we know the city of Berkeley has experienced historical and unprecedented mass displacement of its Black residents and families. As displacement continues, the Black residents of Berkeley continue to be the most vulnerable and impacted with ongoing threats of evictions, housing displacement, homelessness, separations of families, and communities and the loss of homes and neighborhoods. This loss of housing impacts through all the social determinants of health. I was touched as Lisa, Dr. Warhus and Dr. Hernandez spoke about the impact of COVID-19 on the Berkeley community. Um, while it's um, impacts, it impacted the broad community, it impacted those most vulnerable much more deeply than many in the community. Um, this slide shows that in addition to the mass displacement of Black folks from the Berkeley community, we've also seen a progressive decline in the enrollment of Black people and families with children um, in Berkeley. Um, as they're displaced from the community. Ayana? So as far as our affordable housing practice policy work history, uh, 
Healthy Black Families was asked by the Black Community Leaders Group convened by East Bay Community Law Center and um, Policy Fellow Anna Cash to support the city of Berkeley in administering the Berkeley Considers Affordable Housing Preference Policy Survey. This was in early 2021 to lay the foundation for fair and just housing policy Healthy Black families supported the process by holding focus groups and implementing the right to return, right to stay, right to own survey to harvest the voice of the Black community. We also hosted a housing is a human right community forum and did on the ground survey work with paper surveys and, of course, did um, surveying by phone and through computer. Through this, the Berkeley Black Community Leadership Group determined the need for a secondary survey after reviewing the Berkeley Considers Affordable Housing Survey. That review brought forward that there were additional questions needed to document the unique experiences and needs of the community. So we created our own survey to align with the Berkeley Considers Survey and um, surveyed predominantly Black community members. So the intention of the preference policy is to create opportunities for displaced Black community members to return to community and be supported to stay in community through providing affordable housing and a reparative framework with wraparound services. It is vital that the voices of the most vulnerable in the community be centered as this policy is passed, implemented, and governed, and funded, y'all. <laughs> There's also an opportunity to create pathways to ownership through supporting policies such as TOPA, the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act, which we also uh, advocated for as we were surveying our community. We, were, we used it as a um, opportunity to educate our community around the needs, um, house, housing needs. Mina? Um, so as we're putting the policy before you this evening, um, there it is not a complete policy, it's incomplete. Um, the community was very clear in voicing the need for the policy to be race specific in order to accomplish its intended goals. Um, because of Prop 209 and current politics in the state of California around the race specific policies, um, the city attorney's office has decided to remove the race based elements of the policy. Um, our commitment is to continue to research historical exclusionary policies that targeted black people and document these in order to justify amending the policies to include race-based preferences. This research is also going on in other municipalities that are seeking to pass policies around racial justice. Um, and so we also ask for the commitment and cooperation of the city and its commissions as we pursue this vital research and um, work to secure this amendment to the policy. So as we move the policy forward, we wanna maintain a process focus. Um, and we ask the question, how can we ensure that 
the intentions that generated this policy remain our focus? Um, and then how do we center and prioritize the needs of Berkeley's displaced community members as the processes are developed, as outcomes are measured, and as peoples are placed in affordable housing? Um, we also wanna maintain an outcome focus. Uh, economic oppression is institutionalized, and if uninterrupted systems by their structure will replicate that oppression over and over and over again. In Berkeley, we see this manifested in the housing spaces as masses of black and poor people are being displaced from the community. Um, I think we're down to 6% black people in Berkeley, down from a high of 40%. Um, historic disinvestment requires reinvestment on a historic scale. Um, and this is the beginning of that process as far as the policy goes and there'll be much more as the Adeline Corridor is redeveloped and we move toward um, a reparative framework for this community around that. Um, the affordable housing preference policy and other tenant-focused initiatives like TOPA are viable strategies to interrupt this institutionalized systematic oppression and create policies that embrace the needs of workforce, moderate, low, and very low income members of the Berkeley community. Um, I mentioned as we started that healthy black families paramount value is human dignity. Um, the true norm for progress for the economy is the flourishing of humanness. Um, we're in a space now where capitalism, capitalistic forces are combating our human focus. Um, the transition from less human conditions to truly human conditions should be the goal. You know, investments are not value-free. Purchasing is always a moral, not just an economic act. And again, um, we just wanna reemphasize that healthy black families, we are conscious of and actively support the basic rights of every human being to have respect and to have their basic needs met so that each person has the opportunity to develop their full potential. We hope that the city council will support these values through the passage, funding, and implementation of the affordable housing preference policy. And that concludes our presentation. Thank you for allowing us to come before you this evening. And I would like to again um, bring focus on the work of the East Bay Community Law Center. Without them and the San Francisco Foundation's Partnership for the Bay's Future, which is regional work being done um, throughout the Bay Area, this policy probably wouldn't exist. And of course, the work of Anna Cash and the Berkeley Black Leadership Group, which included um, Willie Phillips, Mansoor, Irma Parker, uh, our beloved Barbara White, Babawa Kwanele, I'm, I'm missing names, um, Gerald Lenoir, Dr. Vicki Alexander, and um, other community members, Cheryl Davila, uh, Moni Law. There were many of us that participated in this, and the Berkeley Black Ecumenical Ministers Alliance, because um, they did their work around affordable housing as well. I'm complete. Thank you so much. Okay.
is everyone seeing my screen again? Take that as a yes. Your guess. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Mamayana and Mina, for the powerful presentation. So again, a housing preference policy is a policy to prioritize applications of households who experienced or are facing displacement in Berkeley for new affordable housing units. And I'm going to talk more now about the policy options before council tonight. So first, the kinds of housing preferences will be applied to include inclusionary housing known as below market rate or BMR housing in Berkeley and nonprofit affordable housing supported by Berkeley's Housing Trust Fund or HTF. This will only properties moving forward and it will only apply to units accessed by lottery. This policy reprioritizes lottery results. The housing preference policy, if adopted, would implement the community and council identified goals of responding to displacement from Berkeley that has occurred, addressing housing insecurity and preventing additional displacement from Berkeley, and acknowledging historic harms, especially against the Black community who has faced disproportionate discrimination and displacement pressures. As we all know, and as Healthy Black Families spoke to poignantly, significant displacement within and from Berkeley has already occurred. Between 1990 to 2018, Berkeley lost 49% of its Black population. You can see on this map areas that lost Black households in red and those that gained Black households in green. Preference policies for affordable housing are unique amongst anti-displacement policy tools for their potential to help already displaced residents return to the community. And there are broader efforts on racial equity in the city of Berkeley, which will intersect with the housing preference policy. So council referrals include a 2021 referral authored by council member Taplin on a reparative justice revolving loan fund with affirmative racial justice and anti-displacement goals. This referral also calls for a publicly available user-friendly data dashboard for monitoring housing justice indicators in the city. A 2022 referral authored by council member Bartlett to fund a consultant to facilitate a community process to design and implement a local reparations plan. A 2022 budget referral authored by council member Taplin for a local revolving loan fund pilot program to cover down payments and closing costs for qualifying applicants in a racial equity and reparative justice framework. There are also recommendations coming out of the Housing Advisory Commission, in particular, two recommendations that were made in light of the housing preference policy proposal. So at their March meeting, the HAC will be discussing a possible recommendation to adopt an ordinance to remove credit checks and evictions history from applications for housing in order to remove barriers to accessing safe and affordable housing. At the October HAC meeting, HAC adopted the recommendation to fund a study to document the city of Berkeley's history of discriminatory actions, as well as its actions to regulate or fail to regulate discrimination in the housing market. The commission specifically noted that this work should be sourced to local community organizations advancing racial justice initiatives in the community. We are waiting on the report from HAC and will advance it for council's consideration as soon as we receive it. I want to pause on this point to underscore the importance of such a study for housing preference policy efforts. 
While we make the recommendations we are making now, we also commit to conducting further research to determine what we can do to strengthen our ability to address racial equity. And while waiting for this research, which may be extensive and take time, we need to put something in place in the meantime that takes us closer than what we have now, which is no preference policy. These referrals are a selection of relevant and complementary ongoing racial equity work and are, of course, not comprehensive of racial equity efforts that the city is undertaking. So an affordable housing preference policy is just one piece of many efforts to address gentrification and displacement and equity. It is an important step to make sure new affordable rental housing in Berkeley can help address displacement in a more targeted way. And historic commitments to affordable housing represent a better opportunity to achieve anti-displacement policy goals. Berkeley is starting to create affordable housing at a new pace, responding to the needs in the community. That growth in affordable housing, including the City Council's significant commitments to affordable housing at the Ashby and North Berkeley BART sites, is an opportunity to begin to reverse the trends of displacement that we have been talking about. Working alongside other critical policy efforts, a housing preference policy asks the question, how do we ensure that people with long-term ties to Berkeley, many of whom endured disinvestment and then faced displacement as their neighborhoods started to see investment, how do we ensure that more of these Berkeleyans get a chance to come home and have stable housing to be a part of this city's present and future? So those are some of the issues this policy is trying to address, and we have discussed the community engagement process leading to recommendations for preferences. As noted, after the community leaders group supported an initial set of recommendations, the policy then came to the Housing Advisory Commission. PAC supported all six preferences that staff identified via the community engagement process and also added a preference for those displaced by eviction. On the next slides, I'm going to go through each preference recommended via community engagement and the hack, the reasons for it, and some potential implementation considerations in more depth. So displacement due to BART construction, uh, descendant of someone who is displaced due to construction of BART stations in Berkeley would be a first priority. In the 1960s, BART bought blocks of homes in order to build Ashby and North Berkeley BART stations, in some cases invoking eminent domain. This preference would support those who lost their homes due to BART construction and forewent intergenerational wealth building opportunities as a result. It would acknowledge this harm and provide an opportunity to return to the community with stable housing for those who are interested and income qualify for affordable housing. Implementation considerations include the need to verify documentation from BART construction in the 1960s. Staff submitted a public records request to BART and received some records on individuals who lost their homes due to BART construction. Staff are seeking further clarification on whether these records are comprehensive. And I also want to note that community discussions have centered around those displaced due to eminent domain, but staff are proposing a broader scope to this preference in light of the examination of BART records. The next preference is a preference for those who are displaced in Berkeley due to eviction within the past seven years. So this would support renters facing challenges finding new housing due to an eviction, which stays on a person's record for seven years impacting their ability to secure safe and affordable housing. 
Evictions disproportionately impact Black women, and eviction court cases move quickly with renters at a significant disadvantage when they do not have legal representation. Given the shortage of affordable housing in Berkeley, an eviction from one housing unit may represent displacement from one's community. In terms of implementation considerations, affordable housing providers suggested that this preference should be limited to specific causes, such as non-payment of rent, owner move-in, and demolition. And also, I wanted to note again that HAC will be discussing recommendations for an ordinance prohibiting landlords from considering evictions history in rental applications at their March meeting. The next preference is a preference for families with children. So this preference seeks to increase community cohesion since families are being displaced from social networks and their school district, often to lower resource places, and in some cases traveling long distances to Berkeley to continue going to school and other activities here. Research and community knowledge indicate that children are most impacted by displacement with impacts on education, childcare, and peer networks. The next preference is for those who have been displaced due to foreclosure in Berkeley since 2005. Looking at data, 2005 is when subprime lending began to really escalate. So this would support displaced residents to return to Berkeley and acknowledge a lack of support during the foreclosure crisis. The foreclosure crisis disproportionately impacted communities of color. In Berkeley, foreclosures were concentrated in South and West Berkeley. The next preference is a preference for those who are homeless or at risk of homelessness with a former address in Berkeley. This would support housing insecure Berkeley residents to become stably housed in their community. Approximately 49% of low-income renters in Berkeley spend more than half their income on rent. Berkeley's homeless population is disproportionately people of color, and the most common response to the question of why homeless people chose to sleep in Berkeley was that they grew up in Berkeley. In terms of implementation considerations, so again, preferences will only be applied to units allocated by lottery, units that are allocated via more in-depth case management, such as permanent supportive housing units and shelter plus care units, will not have preferences applied. Homeless advocates have noted that people may be at risk of homelessness or homeless with a wide range of circumstances and service needs, and giving a preference for homeless or at-risk individuals may help those who don't meet the criteria for deepest needs to become housed. At the same time, affordable housing providers expressed concern that a homeless preference may lead to chronically homeless residents being housed without adequate support if they're able to income qualify for a unit. Affordable housing providers also expressed concern that there could be an excessive administrative burden to screen chronically homeless applicants who would be prioritized but may not ultimately qualify for income-restricted units at the 50 or 60% of area median income level. And then one other piece that implementation must consider is how homeless people can demonstrate local ties without being overly burdensome in terms of documentation that they might need to provide. So monitoring and adjusting implementation as needed will be really critical for this preference. Before we talk about the final two preferences, which both pertain to formerly redlined areas, I wanted to take a step back on redlined areas in Berkeley. 
As you know, those were primarily in South and West Berkeley and a section of Central Berkeley, west of Martin Luther King Jr. Way. History sets up current gentrification patterns. It's not random where gentrification is happening. Redlining led to patterns of disinvestment that continue to enable gentrification today. If we look at today's maps uh, of gentrification and displacement overlaid with redlining maps, we can see the impacts of some of those exclusionary practices felt today. So these are maps from the Urban Displacement Project at UC Berkeley, which show gentrification and displacement. And as you can see, those purple gentrifying areas and blue displacement risk areas are almost entirely within the redlined areas. So the first preference of these is a preference for residential ties to Berkeley's redlined areas based on the current or former address of the applicant for rental housing. This preference would acknowledge historic racialized injustices that have contributed to the displacement crisis, would support displaced residents to return to Berkeley, and support those in neighborhoods facing gentrification-related displacement pressures to become stably housed. In terms of implementation considerations, it will be important to ensure the ease of applicants identifying whether their address falls in a redlined area, and this is something that we're currently discussing with partners and staff in other cities about how to streamline from a technology perspective. And then this, this other redlining preference would be a separate additional point if a parent or guardian or grandparent of the applicant has or had a former address in a redlined area. So the rationale for this preference is similar. And this category would indicate an even deeper family tie to the community. In addition to the technology considerations I mentioned before, there's also a question with this preference of verifying older documentation, which is something we are discussing with other cities with similar preferences. So who can the housing preference policy benefit? There are lots of different kinds of people that the preference policy will support in getting stable, affordable housing. This is Bernetta Fisher, a 71-year-old South Berkeley native who had moved out of Berkeley 15 years ago after her rental home was sold. Thankfully, she got an apartment in North Berkeley's Jordan Court Apartments last year. When she got word of the apartment, she had just finished undergoing radiation treatments for cancer. In a Berkeley side profile, she told reporters that she used to think to herself, I'm going to die before I get an apartment. While Ms. Fisher was lucky to get a unit, there were 1,000 applicants for this 34-unit senior affordable housing project. This policy will mean that some portion of the units are prioritized for those who have been most impacted by Berkeley's displacement pressures and historical injustices. Under the housing preference policy, Ms. Fisher would have gotten a leg up given her ties to South Berkeley, a formerly redlined area. If a parent or grandparent also had lived in South Berkeley, she would get an additional point for that as well. It's important to note that Jordan Court is senior housing, and nothing about the housing preference policy changes the fact that some housing will be prioritized for special populations, such as seniors, disabled people, or veterans. The preference policy is a policy that will layer on top of a portion of the units. To wrap up, we're going to briefly discuss the implementation of the policy. So I want to talk about fair housing analysis, which is a required part of the process in implementing a preference policy. 
The specific kind of analysis required is called disparate impact analysis, and it assesses whether specific racial groups or other protected classes would be inadvertently disproportionately impacted by a housing preference policy. We need it because housing trust fund projects rely on other funders who require this analysis, but the analysis would not be required for below market rate inclusionary projects. So staff issued an RFP for disparate impact analysis and the contract with the selected bidder will be coming to council next week. Staff recommend that the policy be simultaneously adopted on the BMR units while the disparate impact analysis is conducted so that the policy can be applied to housing trust fund units. In terms of implications, uh, disparate impact analysis defines what percentage of units housing preference policy can be applied to without a disparate impact. It is staff's intention that it be applied, the housing preference policy be applied to the maximum percentage of units possible, but research from other cities shows the policy will not be able to be applied to 100% of units in a development. So how does it work? As I mentioned, these affordable housing units are really competitive. They're usually allocated via a randomized lottery. So currently someone who has ties to Berkeley and has been displaced or struggling to stay would have no more likelihood of getting a unit than anyone else. This policy will create point groups that create a prioritization for a portion of units in the lottery. Those with the most points will be at the top of the lottery for the units that preferences are applied to. So first an applicant will identify preference eligibility on their application, and then point groups will be created with lotteries ranked based on those point groups. To close, I wanna ground us in the goal for this evening's work session, which is for council to identify preferences for staff to move forward for policy development and the development of an implementation plan. So we'll move into Q&A now, and Mike and I will be here to answer questions. With that, thank you and looking forward to your questions and discussion. And I'll leave the preference slide up as a reference for the discussion. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so before we go to public comment and council discussion, we do need to take a captioner break. So uh, let's take a 10 minute break. We'll be back at 8.23 p.m. Thank you. Recording stopped. I think it's an adverse inquire. I know that they're trying to look at settlements. 
Recording in progress. Oh, it is 8.24 p.m. If the members of the city council can please rejoin us so we can start the meeting. Okay, once again, um, we'd like to reconvene. So if the council can please rejoin us. Thank you. We have a quorum present. So I'm going to recommend we go straight to public comment because I anticipate we'll have a, uh, a lengthy discussion on the report. So we'll now proceed to public comment on item two, the affordable housing preference policy. I'd like to first, um, Go out of order. Um, we're very pleased to be joined this evening by one of our representatives on the BART Board of Directors and a champion for social justice, uh, Latifa Simon. So I'd like to go first to Director Simon, and thank you so much for joining us tonight. And Latifa, um, you should be able to speak. Uh, Director Simon, um, we can come back to you if you'd like, but I uh, wanted to give you the opportunity to kick off uh, public comment. Okay, why don't we go to Nathan Mizell and then we'll come back to Bart Director Simon. Mr. Mizell. Hello, Mr. Mayor and Council, can you hear me? Yes. Hello, Mr. Mayor and Council. I want to first just thank the community for all of their work, obviously healthy black families, East Community Law Center, all the folks who came out to the sessions to really give their voice and you know, the impacts of displacement, you know, throughout the South Berkeley community, throughout the black community in the city, and you know, their willingness to engage in this very difficult but critical work. Um, you know, if we're really going to have a Berkeley community that can represent and be home to everyone. So I'm very encouraged by uh, the policy and, and the work so far, um, I, I want to thank Councilor Bartlett and Councilor Kaplan for their work and their additional resolutions to really hopefully give people opportunity to stay or to return to community. Um, as we push into this work, I'm looking to learn more and be supportive any way I can, obviously, in my new role. Um, but I would stress also at this time, I think it's important that we pass complementary policies um, along with this preference, um, including the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act, which I think is essential um, to giving long-term residents more tools to remain in our community. So I, I hope that's something we can work together on as well. Um, housing, as I think we all believe, is and must be a human right. And I think these policies are one of our first steps forward to really strengthen and, and, and make that more of a reality in our city. So I'm looking forward to where this work goes. I'll be following it much more closely and, and learning as much as I can. And certainly I, I know there's more work to be done. So I'm looking forward to being a partner in that work with you. And I, I thank staff, um, y'all, and of course the community for, for the work so far. 
Okay, thank you very much. We'll go next to George Littman, followed by Reverend Sophia DeWitt. Yes, uh, good evening, Council Mayor. Um, I'm, uh, my name's George Littman. I'm Vice Chair of the Berkeley Peace and Justice Commission. I'm not speaking for them tonight, but this uh, proposal is in line with the principles that the Commission has long held, um, racial justice, human rights, and restorative justice. I uh, thank everyone again who, as Nathan did, uh, who's been part of this wonderful beginning. Um, I can't think of a better group than Healthy Black Families and all the, the other uh, folks in the Black, particularly the Black community, who uh, then, to, then to partner with um, to identify community needs. I want to speak on one perhaps controversial aspect and refer back to what Ayanna Davis was saying um, about the reason that this is not complete at this time. I think there's a lot of wonderful aspects to it, but I think the issue of um, this is intended to, among other things, re return, uh, um, um, reverse the displacement of the Black community. I think the presentations were very clear on what the history of that is. It's uh, implicit bias and explicit bias going back many decades, and that's how the current situation in the city was created. Um, I think we need to find ways. I understand the legal obstacles in California. We need to find ways to uh, th that are as direct as possible to prioritize the return of the black community. I, I just want to refer to one other conversation that I recall from many years ago when a former member of the city council uh, on this dais, um, we were talking about oh, people were saying, we don't want Berkeley to become another Piedmont. And and this council member said, well, what's so bad about Piedmont? That sounds great to me. Well, if you want to live in Piedmont, no disrespect, but that's not Berkeley. It's in, it's it. The benefit redounds to all of us to have a diverse community for so many reasons. Um, that's that's where we want to be. We want to get back to where we have um, the the leadership. Thank you. Uh, and the input of all all of our uh, all of, all the sections of our community that have been driven out. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to go out of order to go to Bart Director Latifah Simon. Thank you very much, Director Simon, for joining us tonight and for your ongoing partnership with the City of Berkeley and planning for new housing at our Ashby Bart Station. Um, Director Simon, um, I'm going to go to you. Hi. Thank you, Mayor, and thank you, Council. Um, I just wanted to just join tonight. Um, and I really, because I really wanted to hear the presentation and I'm so excited about Equitable Black Berkeley and so excited about the city of Berkeley's commitment um, to, to thinking about ways to really advance the issue of ensuring that the East Bay, particularly of course, in this case, Berkeley remains a city um, that, that has a liberatory philosophy of making sure that it's really home. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm over the moon with the presentation, and actually, I can't wait to look at the slides after, um, so I can take better notes. One of the things I wanted to say to you, Mayor, again, and to Miss Ayana and and the, the executive staff at Equitive Black Berkeley, what you all are doing and and, and putting forward to the city and to the public is is deeply an anecdote. Um, to fill a void that, that hasn't been filled. The cautionary tale is the city that I grew up in, in San Francisco. I grew up in the Fillmore. And just 25 years ago, the population of San Francisco was 12% African-American. It's less, as you all know, now less than 3%. And of that 3%, 90% of those 3% <laughs> 
are living in public housing um, and are in our in in deep poverty. Berkeley can and will do better. Um, and instead of creating a deeply uh, segregated city, what I see laid out in front of us, including hopefully, I know you know, Mayor, what's going to happen with our project, our collective project, is everything that comes out of the ground moving forward in Berkeley. Uh, will hopefully be in this in 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 this spirit in this goal to ensure that folks um who have generational impact in the city get to stay the right to stay the right to create family um and this policy prescription these ideas um are 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 wonderful and as you know you know in my district i represent 19 cities uh, and this is the the first presentation of this kind of this quality that has involved uh, community members who have been doing this work in community for over 40 years, collective, just the executive staff with equitable, equitable Black Berkeley. I think there's 70 years of collective experience with your staff. Um, there's more. So thank you for allowing me to talk and just express um, my excitement and again, wanting to learn more and working with your team um, on our development and hopefully to be updated on others. This is good work so much. Thank you so much, Director Simon. Thank you for all your partnership with the city of Berkeley. And we're going to get we're going to get that project built at Ashby Station. And it's going to be a model for equitable development. OK, um, we'll go next to uh, Reverend Sophia DeWitt, followed by former Councilmember Davila. Good evening, uh, Mayor and Council members. Um, Reverend Sophia DeWitt, Senior Director of Programs at East Bay Housing Organizations. I first want to um, give great thanks to all the community members and organizations and individuals who've worked so hard to bring um, this policy to this uh, stage of development. And uh, I want to say that EBHO strongly supports um, this policy and, and its goals um, and wants to see it um, come to fruition and to enactment in the city of Berkeley. Um, obviously, um, the uh, disparate impact analysis is going to be important uh, in that implementation as um, we have to be sure that, you know, uh, the policy will uh, be um, consistent with fair housing law. I think it's an area where um, race conscious policy and race neutral policy come into conflict. And uh, but I know that we are creative and we can figure out um, the way to make that happen. Um, I also want to uh, just express thanks for the outreach that has been done to um, members of the affordable housing um, development community uh, in Berkeley. Uh, on this policy and development and just say that we look forward to continuing to work with the city and other uh, members of the community um, to push uh, this policy forward and um, enact this really important racial equity um, policy. Thanks so very much. Thank you. Okay, we'll go next to our former colleague, Cheryl Davila, followed by Michael Trujillo from EBCLC. Thank you, former council member Cheryl Davila here. Um, I just wanted to make a, a, a correction um, because um, it was referred, if you refer to page 48 of the 50 page packet, 
you'll see uh, Council Member Cheryl Davila referred to the planning department. And um, I was the author and um, Council Member District 3 was the co-sponsor. That's how that was done at that time. The first name was the author. So I wanted to um, put that into the record. Thank you very much. Um, and yes, TOTOPA, uh, the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act. And thank you to Healthy Black Families for their presentation. It's wonderful, wonderful to see two beautiful Black women uh, presenting at uh, the City Council during Black History History Month. And um, yes, housing is a human right, equity for Black Berkeley. We need to have all of Berkeleyans come along to support equity for Black Berkeley. As um, the South Berkeley Mayor, Ms. Ritchie says, uh, the pink folks or our Caucasian neighbors have to be supportive and do their part um, to join Equity for Black Berkeley. That might mean that they need to take some standing up for racial justice um, uh, trainings and um, realize that now is the time for them to take a step back and listen to our equity for Black Berkeley and of the Black residents of Berkeley. Thank you. Have a blessed day and Thank happy uh, that Tuesday. Okay, we'll go next to Michael Trujillo followed by Rivka Palatnik. Good evening, Mayor and Council. My name is Michael Trujillo and I'm an attorney at the East Bay Community Law Center. EBCLC is proud to support the affordable housing preference policy as part of our Women of Color Centered platform. And as was mentioned, our office was involved in the Challenge Grant Initiative. Um, so just wanna say that we're very grateful to our former fellow Anna Cash, uh, Department of HHCS and Healthy Black Families for all of the hard work that's gone into centering this policy on the lived experiences of those who've been most impacted by the housing crisis and systemic racism in housing. The preference policy is really essential for achieving racial equity in Berkeley because it directly addresses historical harms to Berkeley's communities of color. And um, no other tool in Berkeley's policy toolkit promises to provide an affirmative opportunity for families that have been displaced from our community to return here. And this will be essential for for preserving Berkeley's identity as a place where diversity is celebrated. The preferences proposed in this framework are narrowly tailored to specific instances of discrimination or exclusion and are really um, needed to address the fact that housing is a right that has not been accessible to all in our community uh, for much of our history. Berkeley's work to achieve equity and meet the housing needs of our community cannot stop here, although this is an important step forward. So we urge City Council to adopt a strong version of this policy and to prioritize complementary measures like the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act that will help ensure long-term residents are not displaced in the first place and instead have an opportunity to stay in this community and eventually own their own homes. Thank you for considering this vital policy and we look forward to supporting however we can as it moves towards adoption and implementation. Thank you. Thank you. We'll go next to Ripka Palatnik followed by Jasmine Sozi. 
Hi, uh, I'm a District 6 resident and have lived in Berkeley for over 50 years, 5 And uh, I want to say that the healthy Black families and Ayanna Davis speak for me. I think Berkeley still has many uh, residents of, or people, many people of different colors, ethnicities, and economic positions who believe strongly that we're not going to achieve the kind of changes we want for our beloved city without strong preference policies and restorative justice policies. You know, there are just too many still obstacles and barriers to getting the kind of place we'd like Berkeley to be. So we need strong policies like preference policies and restorative justice policies. And although this, I'll, I'll just say affirmative action to uh, create a just and wonderful city. Thank you. Thank you. We'll go next to Jasmine Sozi, followed by Jasmine Poyayan. Jasmine Sozi, you should not be able to speak. Hello, Mayor, Council members, and community members. My name is Jasmine Sozi, and I'm with the East Bay Community Law Center and Topo Working Group. First, I want to say thank you to Healthy Black Families for their commitment to making Berkeley a more equitable place. They're working to ensure that the affordable housing preference policy is really grounded in the lived experiences of our neighbors who have been impacted by systemic inequalities, namely housing. I also want to thank Anna Cash and so many others for their tireless efforts. Berkeley has a history of displacement and exclusion of Black folks. And as Mina from Healthy Black Families said earlier this evening, historic disinvestment requires reinvestment on a historic scale. We urge you to create opportunities for Black families to return to this community. Black people have shaped the city of Berkeley, and we ought to create a housing infrastructure that welcomes Black residents with open arms. We ask you to prioritize complementary policies like the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act, which will work with the preference policy to guarantee that long-term residents have a meaningful opportunity to remain in their homes and in our community. Housing is a human right, and the preferences contained in this policy are necessary to start addressing the fact that this right has not been equally accessible to everyone in our community for much of our history. We ask you to care about people and not profits. And we ask you to implement a strong version of the affordable housing preference policy. Thank you. Thank you. We'll go to our next speaker, Jasmine Poyayan, followed by, please forgive my pronunciation, followed by Moni Law, followed by Kelly Hammergren. Jasmine, you should now be able to speak. Hello, good evening. My name is Jasmine Poyawan. I'm a senior attorney at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights in San Francisco's Economic Justice Program. Before this, I was a program director at the East Bay Community Law Center, where I had the honor to work in coalition with Healthy Black Families and other CBOs within the Berkeley Black uh, and African American community on this proposed housing preference policy through the Challenge Grant. First and foremost, I applaud and uplift the work and recommendations of healthy Black families and the Berkeley Black community leaders that um, has been going on well before this preference policy uh, was made a recommendation to, to council. In my role at EDCLC, I work closely with Anna Cash to conduct legal research to ensure that these preferences would have strong legal defense against constitutional and Prop 209 challenges. 
because of the city of Berkeley's history of explicit discriminatory policies explained in the presentation, such as redlining, I believe that the proposed preferences are not only legally justifiable, but necessary to right historical wrongs against Berkeley's Black community. I also support Healthy Black Families' continued call for the city to continue researching the historical basis for a race-based preference in the future. This is a pivotal moment and opportunity to advance a preference policy, but not only this, uh, other policies as well as the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act that can help level the playing field, acknowledge historical wrongs, and address the racial wealth gap that contributes to so many inequities in our city, county, state, and nation. For these reasons, I wholeheartedly support advancing this preference policy. Thank you. Thank you. We'll go next to Moni Law, followed by Kelly Hammergren. There we go. Um, thank you. I want to uh, second uh, what was just stated by the prior speaker. As an attorney myself for 25 years, between my two stays here in Berkeley, I uh, had nine years from 78 to 86. And then the last 12 years, I'm shocked and dismayed by the vast displacement of Black people. When I first came back, I said, what happened to all the Black people? Mayor Gus Newport and I started to talk about it and decided to do a short documentary. I commend you to, to watch that. It's 13 minutes long. I just sent it to council. Happy to send Front Porch Stories, Displacement of Black People from Berkeley, a short documentary. Also, um, it is narrow, narrowly tailored, narrowly tailored to meet the need to correct past wrongs. That is legally defensible and, as others have said, morally required. The stories, I must give some honor and real credit that's due to my elders here in Berkeley who have suffered extreme discrimination. Um, Richie, Miss Richie said how she would go into a store in Berkeley and she was not allowed to try on the clothing. Black people were not allowed in the store and you had to take your measurements and give them to the person inside the store. Um, other things, of course, have occur occurred in terms of written policies, racially restrictive covenants. Margot Smith has a um, deed that says you cannot sell to black people or Jews and black people were displaced as well as um, discounted from even getting housing. TOPA is important. These preference points are important. Conscious decision-making is important to correct the past that is wrong. A number of Black families in Berkeley who have been displaced permanently at this time, but they should be returned immediately um, with constructive programs as, such as this. Please do give funding as well as support and policy on the equity in Black Berkeley and all of Berkeley will benefit from that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll go to our next speaker, uh, Kelly Hammergren, followed by Ray Yap. Um, thank you. I, I'm glad that we're finally getting to this. It's been a long time since it was started, 2019, I believe, April 2019. Um, so, um, you know, and it still seems like it's months away before we will have a policy in place. Um, but I do look forward to the discussion this evening uh, after you've heard public comment and I was going to ask if we could have the presentation um, posted 
Um, I don't see it up yet. Um, I've been looking for it. So those are all the comments I have. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll go next to uh, Deb, followed by Christina Murphy. Deb, you should now be able to speak. Greetings. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, so my question is regarding this disparate analysis um, and panning out, thinking about doing harm historically, continually doing harm in present time, and then moving in the direction of attempting to right harms. How is it possible without, when those, arm, when those harms are race-based, how is it possible to have any form of repair if you can't look back and take into not just consideration, but implementing um, rules and laws around the same considerations that cause those harms. So uh, I'm, I'm tapping on the same, uh, I'm underscoring what Healthy Black Families has said, which is that um, this preference policy is not complete, right? Because race has been taken out. So how do you then, and I'm zooming out, towards the future how do we repair harm to black people yeah and i'll end it there thank you thank you okay we'll go next to christina murphy uh thank you mayor and council uh so um I really appreciate affordable housing preference policy. I support that. Um, I would like to um, ask you guys to please do a follow-up. Uh, please make sure that the preference uh, policy is followed up with the ADA accommodations for the people that are the most vulnerable. Uh, we find that there's housing available, but the housing don't meet the need of the most vulnerable as far as their ADA accommodations. I also want to remind y'all that I was born and raised in North Berkeley, and my grandmother was a nurse and um, over at Romford Medical Center. So I feel like I have like some privilege to be able to speak. Uh, my grandmother was around back in redlining uh, time. Also, we know when we talk about history, it makes my stomach cringe because we all know that Berkeley was named after a slaveholder and our history shows that it was no place for people of color. We were the heathens. We were the people that they did not want there. So um, a lot of times when we talk about uh, more services for people of color, for brown and people of color, uh, it, it doesn't really support it when we talk about the history. And so I just want the new city council to know that you guys are doing a great job at trying to rewrite the history, but with the rewriting history, policies also have to have a system that backs it up. It's one thing to put a policy, but it's one another thing to, to make sure that it's followed through and that there is quality compliance on are the people being placed according to preference and are the people being served and able to keep their agency and are people uh, getting connected to the uh, services that are needed to be able to stay housed in their affordable house, housing. 
And um, so with that, um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll go next to caller with the number ending 060. I think this is Carol Mrosovic, and she is the last raised hand I see. Um, is there anyone else on Zoom that wishes to speak? If so, please raise your hand at this time. Okay. Um, call with the number ending 060. You should be able to speak. Please press star six. Okay. Um, I'd like to raise some practical considerations. Uh, the first one is regarding the inclusionary units. If you're deal dealing with uh, extremely low-income persons who are homeless, there isn't a sufficient number of subsidies that are going around. So how would you address that? Because the inclusionary units are intended for very low-income and low-income persons. So is the city of Berkeley going to provide sufficient subsidies so that uh, homeless persons who are extremely low income will be able to access those uh, units. Uh, second, in terms of a person's at risk of becoming homeless, are we talking about waiting lists in order to access uh, these units? Uh, because someone who is at risk of becoming homeless who is about to enter the eviction process or is in the eviction process is going to need to move expeditiously. Are they going to, is there going to be a procedure that this, that they will be able to uh, present while they're navigating the eviction process that they will be able to access these units so that they can reach a settlement. Uh, third, I, and recalling about six years ago when I was at a council meeting and I was flipping through the notebook of communications to council um, back when we were at Old City Hall. And a woman described herself as having had to move out of Berkeley because she was 60 years old, had lived in Berkeley all her life, but had to move from the apartment that she was in made $40,000 a year, applied for one illegal unit that was in a garage at $1,900 and competed with uh, 20 other individuals. And one of those individuals outbid her. Then she went into a similar situation. And ultimately, she could not find anything in Berkeley that was affordable. And she had to move a couple hours outside Berkeley, and she said, this council, this is what you've made Berkeley become. So for someone like that, how is she going to be able to access the system? How would she know about the right uh, to return? Carol, if you can how, please look up. Okay, how are you going to reach out to individuals in terms of them uh, knowing that they have the right to return or apply for these units? Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, I don't see any other raised hands from attendees on Zoom that wish to speak. Is there anyone here in the boardroom that would like to speak on this item? Okay, if not, um, that completes public comment on item two, the affordable housing preference policy presentation. I'm gonna take my mask off while I speak, if I may, because um, I'd like to open the discussion. And first say how excited I am that this is finally coming to the city council. Um, for discussion and future adoption. This is extremely important. 
this has been working its way through our process since 2016. Um, and uh, I really appreciate all the work that Anna Cash has done and the partnership with Healthy Black Families and uh, many um, community leaders in South Berkeley and African-American community leaders in Berkeley um, to really get extensive community input to help shape the, the priorities and preferences here in this policy. I'll just say, you know, on the issue of um, including explicit race-based preferences, we're obviously not able to do that at this time. Um, but, and I think that just illustrates the need for us to repeal Proposition 209, um, because that is the barrier that prohibits us from being able to to do this. And there's no doubt that African Americans have been disproportionately harmed by explicit actions of government, whether it's um, exclusionary zoning, which is council has obviously done a great deal to try to look at changing our zoning regulations to um, to expand opportunities for housing throughout the city, whether it's redlining. Um, there are very there's very clear documented evidence of explicit actions by local government um, to exclude people of color from certain neighborhoods to prevent the built the creation and preservation of wealth. Um, there are actions that have been taken um, that resulted in the demolition of homes and businesses, um, and that not just deprives black people and people of color, also impacts other people of color um, from the ability to stay in the community that they live in and to be able to have roots and um, build wealth and opportunity. Uh, but that creates a generational harm um, in our community. And it's not a surprise that we have um, roughly 8% of our population now in the year 2023 is African-American from 20% in the 1970 census. The direct actions on the part of real estate and government, and it's not just government, it's also real real estate entities um, through explicit racist segregate, segregated actions. And if anyone hasn't read The Color of Law, I think it very explicitly documents this. Um, uh, that has resulted in an exodus of Black people and other people of color and working families from our city. And uh, we are committed to trying to reverse that. And this policy is one, one way to do that. So um, just on the preferences, if I can just provide my comments, I think, um, and I agree with the input from the community and from the hack, that the um, um, party number one should be um, the preference for those that were displaced, uh, whose families were displaced due to the BART construction. Um, and I would argue that we should probably look more broadly at South Berkeley, not just include BART, but also South Berkeley. But certainly it makes sense to look at focusing on the BART developments because there were whole blocks of homes that were demolished to create these two BART stations. And now we're actually trying to undo that through the work of Councillor Kesarwani and Bartlett to build new affordable housing on those very sites where homes existed previously. But we need to, we do need to prioritize for those residents who are going to live in the affordable housing, people from families who were affected um, by um, the construction of these two projects. Um, I also agree that um, preference for uh, people that were displaced due to foreclosure is also um, something that we should prioritize. With respect to a, a preference for evictions, I would argue that we should focus on no-fault evictions, which is actually something that other um, other cities that have preference policies have done. That would include Ellis Act evictions, owner-moving evictions, code enforcement, 
and other circumstances like fires or earthquakes where people were involuntarily displaced. Um, I am not comfortable with uh, allowing for a preference of people that um, did not pay their rent or were behind on their rent. Obviously, the, we have a very strong eviction moratorium that's been in effect, and those people can't be evicted for their back rent under our city law and under state law. But um, I think we should focus on no-fault evictions like other cities have done, families with children, obviously. With respect to homelessness, um, we actually amended our inclusionary policy several years ago. I think I had actually introduced the proposal to require that half of the inclusionary units be reserved for shelter plus care recipients and for Section 8 recipients. So there already is an explicit preference or in prioritization for below market rate housing um, in new developments for shelter plus care for people that are voucher holders who are formerly homeless. In addition, our uh, coordinated entry system is really the, the means by which we prioritize people for placement in housing. And I think, um, and I do agree with some of the comments that were made, yes, we need to get everyone who is experiencing homelessness or formerly homeless into housing. That is the solution. Home, housing is the solution to homelessness. Let's not forget that. But one, we don't have enough housing, sadly, for the over 1,000, 1,500 people who are homeless on any given day in Berkeley. And secondly, typically it requires a much, um, much deeper subsidy per unit because we you typically have to have the on-site supportive services so that people can get the, the resources they need, whether it's behavioral health, public health, um, job, housing navigation, so that they can stay stably housed going forward. We don't want to put somebody in housing and then have them lose their housing six months later. So I think we should focus on the current systems that we have in place and continue to support those systems through Measure P and through federal and state resources. And I don't know if we need an explicit policy for that as opposed to going through coordinated entry and um, and the other uh, policies that we have to prioritize people that are formerly homeless for below market rate housing. I certainly agree that for many, the many reasons I stated that um, tying to redline areas, I think, is extremely important. And I think there's very strong evidence to support that. Um, and then lastly, one preference I did not see in the policy that I saw in, in, in the, um, I think it was the attachment um, attachment to the research on preference policies in other jurisdictions was a preference for people working in Berkeley. I think nearly every city that has a preference policy had a preference for people working in Berkeley. That can include teachers, that can include um, people that work in the hospitality sector, people that work in you know, a variety of different sectors. Obviously, you have to income qualify. But I think we should explore a preference for people working in Berkeley. Um, there are environmental benefits to getting people who work in Berkeley to live in Berkeley, reducing uh, vehicle trips and greenhouse gas emissions. That's good for our, our climate. And also, we should prioritize also, in addition to these other preferences, people that work in Berkeley to live in the communities that they work in. Um, now, how we prioritize all these different preferences is something we'll have to work out. Obviously, priority number one is BART, displacement due to BART, and we're going to have to think about the points and the, and the way that we that we prioritize the preferences for all these different preferences that exist. My what, my last question is around um, how we'll implement, and we are in, Alameda County is implementing a new online portal for people to apply for affordable housing. And in my role as president of ABAG, our new regional housing finance authority is creating Doorway, which will be one regional 
database for people to apply for and access affordable housing. I would think that creating a doorway system would make it easier for, for people to um, apply and for us to layer those preferences on. So I'm wondering if staff can speak to that, because that really, I think, is sort of an implementation question in terms of how we're going to implement this. Does anyone have any thoughts? Yeah, um, we've been in discussions with the Alameda County uh, portal, and we definitely um, they have capacity for preferences. Other communities are already doing it, and it's definitely our intent to work with them uh, to do an application, um, which will also make outreach easier for folks who have already been displaced. You know, they can look in one centralized place and um, see the current housing opportunities. So that is our intent. I'll just say in closing that um, this can't happen any sooner. How many more people are going to be displaced from Berkeley until we have this policy in place? We need to create the affordable housing. I'm proud of the leadership that the, the people of Berkeley through the passage of Measure O and this council has demonstrated over a thousand units in the pipeline, just seeing that graph go up, but we need to keep it going up. So um, it's good that we have, we're building housing. We need to maximize the on-site affordable housing so that we can get, and with the housing element and the thousands of units we're gonna be building over the next eight years, hopefully we'll see a lot more that we can prioritize, but I think this can't happen any sooner. And um, I, I really want to just emphasize the urgency of this coming back to us this summer so we can put this in place and start getting people who, who lived here back into housing in the, in the communities that they've lived in. Thank you for colleagues for indulging me. And we'll go next to Councilman Robinson. Good evening. Hi. Uh, first and foremost, I believe very strongly that we need to repeal Prop 209, and I'm very grateful to this council for supporting its repeal when it was on the ballot in 2020. Uh, secondly, I am just so thrilled and really, frankly, quite deeply moved by the community engagement that is shaping this policymaking process. really want to thank uh, Healthy Black Families and EBCLC and everyone that has played a part in getting us to this report and this day. And Anna Cash, it's so good to hear from you in your new capacity. Hey, and thank you so much for the presentation. Uh, as the mayor mentioned just a little ago, we had an incredibly important discussion about our housing elements and all the different policies we're tackling to incentivize uh, new housing development and affordable housing, particularly that will, I believe, slow and halt the force of gentrification in the city. But this policy and this work, this is what it'll take not just to slow that force, but to actually reverse it. And I am so thrilled by the direction that we have before us. Uh, just a few questions and comments um, on the BART criteria. Uh, there was a note about looking to a broader scope than just uh, those properties affected by the eminent domain. I was wondering if uh, you could elaborate a little on what's meant by that, or maybe that's still uh, a big question mark. Sure. And uh, Mike, feel free to chime in. Uh, essentially, as we did the Public Records Act request to BART, we got an initial set of documents and we're working on getting more. Um, and we saw that, you know, some of the ways that homes were transferred in order to make way for BART were negotiated sales. Um, and, you know, they weren't all cases of eminent domain, the actual seizure but they were still instances in which, uh, you know, a family 
lost their home maybe at a time when they wouldn't have chosen to sell their mm-hmm. home um, to make way for, for the BART construction. And so we're seeking, we have a current public records act request to better understand, you know, the distinctions between the the different ways people lost their homes uh, at those sites. But it seems like it makes sense to broaden the scope given that initial information. Okay, that that is super interesting. And I really want to thank you for taking that approach and making sure that we don't uh, adopt a methodology to try to meet that goal that would actually block out a number of potential applicants that clearly are a case of the story that we're we're trying to tell here. Um, On the homelessness or at risk of homelessness criteria, uh, I really appreciate you breaking down some of the operational concerns in the reports. I certainly am worried about the concern that has been expressed by service providers that that could actually result in, uh, well, we'll call them unideal matches, situations where someone ends up in a unit that doesn't really have the service capacity or services on site that they need for their journey back into being permanently housed, uh, let alone the questions raised by the subsidies that would be required to make that work. Um, so, you know, I think for that category, my thinking, A, would be to certainly emphasize the at-risk population, perhaps more so than the actually homeless population. But secondly, really resonate with the comments of the mayor that, you know, perhaps in many ways, the objectives of having a criteria like this in this local preference policy really are better achieved by our existing policies. Uh, But did want to ask, you know, the report noted the importance of having consistent definitions for homelessness or risk of homelessness with other existing policies. How do we define being at risk of homelessness uh, anywhere else, or how would we define that for the purposes of this policy? Yeah, so the goal would be to use federal or HUD definitions that are in use by existing systems in the city of Berkeley. Um, I know a little bit more about the homeless definition, but one of the, there are several definitions of homelessness, but one of the definitions is imminent risk of homelessness, which includes currently facing an eviction, facing imminent release from an institution with no housing placement resources available, or residing in substandard housing with a notice to vacate. Okay, noted. Thank you. Um, On evictions, uh, I agree with emphasizing a priority for no-fault evictions. Um, And I think really zooming out the BART criteria and the criteria about you know, historic and family connections to our historic redlined areas, to me, that's what gets closest to the crux of why this work is important and where we have the potential to to really make the biggest impact. Uh, so I hope that in whatever way we aggregate all these criteria, whether it becomes sort of a point-based matrix or however we operationalize that, um, that those you know, really are uh, a big part of the priority there. Um, I wrote this down as the mayor was speaking. I hadn't thought about a working in Berkeley uh, local preference, but I think that's certainly very interesting, worth exploring. I think I'd be very excited and supportive of that. Uh, And lastly, I just wanted to ask, getting this right is incredibly important. I'm curious if we have yet any sense of what the staffing needs would be to operationalize that, or if that's perhaps a little contingent on what the final criteria are that we select. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. You know, part of our work here today is to understand the scope that council wants to move forward and um, we'll bring back recommendations and also incorporate it into our ongoing HCS staffing study once we have a more clear understanding of a focus policy. You got it. Good to see you, Mike. You too. Thank, Thank you all. You.
Okay, thank you. We'll go next to Councilmember Taplin. Thank you. I wish to thank and commend HHS staff as well as Healthy Black Families, the Bay Community Law Center, and the Housing Advisory Commission. And I concur with the mayor. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, Councilor Kesawani. We'll go to Councilor Kesawani next, followed by Councilor Bartlett. Oh, okay, great. Thank you very much, Mr. Mayor. Thank you to staff and Healthy Black Families and everyone who was involved in getting us um, to this, I guess, what's a draft policy before us tonight. And um, I, I just wanted to start by really acknowledging um, what the, the groundwork that we've laid with our housing element to say that we are going to rezone the high resource corridors of Solano Avenue, North Shattuck Avenue, and College Avenue. Because I think one of the key takeaways for me in the presentation is that for too long, for the entire history of the city, new development has been located in the formerly redlined areas. And we know that that has had an impact on our low-income communities. The urban displacement project was cited, and I was looking at some other data that they have put out. Uh, they put out a March 2022 brief that found that new market rate housing in the Bay, Bay Area slightly increases displacement for lower income people and slightly decreases moving out for high income people. So the way that we can mitigate the displacement of lower income people is by actually putting housing in those higher income areas. So I'm really proud of the commitment that we've made, not just to consider doing that, not just to look into doing that, but to actually do that. And as long as I'm on this council, I'm gonna make sure that we actually fulfill that commitment to create housing. So now to get into the preference policy, we have to have housing uh, that's being created so that people can actually have an opportunity to get a preference. You know, I find it really disturbing when we hear about a thousand names or thousands of names for 35 units at Jordan Court, right? You know, that is just really tragic. And I know we all have to do, all the cities have to do more to create housing so that we don't have um, such a such a shortage uh, for people who are really in need. Uh, so so I, wa I wanted to just note, you know, those stats again to repeat that in 1970, we had 23.5% of the population of Berkeley, African-American. And in 2020, the, the most recent census, that was down to 8%. And I, I think it's very clear that if we had legalized apartments sooner, if we had been doing more, um, we- uh, Somebody's not muted, thank you. <laughs> we, um, we wouldn't have, uh, seen such a precipitous decline in our African-American population. So I, I really just want to say, I, I, I think these policies are, are, are really um, important. I, I find them to be pretty comprehensive. I, and I really want to thank the mayor because I think his comments, um, I really agree, you know, focusing on no-fault evictions makes a whole lot of sense. And looking at people who work in Berkeley um, that obviously makes a whole lot of sense. We want our teachers, people who are nurses here in Berkeley, you know, our, our city staff, we want all of those folks uh, to have an opportunity to live 
in the city that they work in. And so I, I think that that, that is um, very important. And then on the BART policy. So, you know, one question I had is, is this, um, is there, when you list them the way that you have, are you saying that the BART policy is like priority number one, like that would get the most points, I think I heard, or did I have that wrong? That's correct. We're still determining how to operationalize it in a way that best works with the portal, but in terms of priority, that would be priority number one. Okay. And is that just for the BART developments or it's any affordable housing citywide? It's currently envisioned to be any affordable housing citywide. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I, I think that's reasonable. And I, um, it sounds like we will have this policy in place to be able to prioritize for the BART development. So I think that will be very important. And I just want to um, say just just how profoundly important this is, because I know North Berkeley, I know this area that I represent is thought of as, as a pretty nice area now, uh, which it is, but at the time that BART was created, this neighborhood was a racially mixed neighborhood. It is historically a yellow-lined neighborhood, and, and those people who lost their homes, they were of diverse backgrounds, and, um, you know, some of them may have sold but it was maybe not their plan. And, and some people, and, and we certainly know that the, the value of those homes today, if those homes had been able to have stayed in those families, the, um, the intergenerational wealth that could have been created for those families uh, would have been tremendous. And so this is, I think the least that we can do is to give people an opportunity um, to have a preference, to be able to come back uh, to these affordable housing sites. And and I also need to say that as much as we value the BART stations, they were not created east of Grove Street. They were created in the lower income, formerly yellow line and red line neighborhoods. And so we just have to acknowledge that. And, and I'm really pleased that, you know, we're going to put the housing back at these two stations and try to make these neighborhoods whole and, 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 you know, to me, that is a form of the of restorative justice, of racial justice, of trying to do right by these two neighborhoods um, with, with what we are doing with the BART developments, as well as this housing preference policy. Um, I also want to acknowledge on the homelessness criteria, 42% of people in our homeless count in our point in time count are African-American. Remember, just 8% of our population overall is African-American. So absolutely, that that has to be a criteria that that is very important for us to have that here. I also think, I, I just wanna acknowledge, as we all know, foreclosures happen to people who were targeted for these predatory loans. We know that they were disproportionately targeted to people of color. And we even saw during that financial crisis, African-Americans in their 50s and 60s becoming homeless because they had their homes foreclosed on. And so, of course, that that policy makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I need to just, um, I, I need to better understand I was I was reading the staff report and I I didn't I couldn't quite put, get my mind around what you mean by this disparate impact analysis. It sounds like I, I get what you're saying that 
all the units can't go to people um, who've gotten preferential points as a result of these policies, but it, it sounds very complicated because it doesn't seem that you've, or maybe there is a portion, a section of the report where you've explained it, but like, how does that really work? Um, because it seems like there's some, some analysis done to make sure that um, other people are, are also given an opportunity to qualify for the housing. Yeah, so um, disparate impact analysis is kind of a complex statistical analysis, and we have done an RFP uh, to work with a consultant on this, and that's a contract that'll come to council next week. Um, but essentially, it looks at, you know, there's there's several tests that are done that are kind of informed uh, by legal cases and legal precedent. Um, to sort of statistically play out what things would look like with these preferences versus without and how different protected classes would be impacted. So in the RFP, okay. we asked for disparate impact analysis for each preference and a report summarizing that analysis and any applicable fair housing implications, as well as editable tools for staff to do that moving forward so that we can conduct that analysis on project by project basis with the different funding sources that are affordable housing uses. Okay, so you have to do that analysis for every affordable housing site. I think it's up in the air right now. The state hasn't provided clear direction on it. And that's something that we're working in partnership with other communities in the Bay Area through the partnership with the Bay Area. Oh, okay. Um, to get more clear direction on. So right now, that's our understanding, but we're hoping to move to a place where we can have kind of a blanket policy. Oh, okay. Because it does sound very um, time and intensive and and co and costly. But but so we need to get more guidance. Are there other Please. cities in the Bay Area who have already implemented this? Because I thought that SF had already had a housing preference policy in place. Yes, San Francisco has one, Oakland has one, East Palo Alto recently passed one, as well as Redwood City. Um, San Jose is currently working on one, and they also worked on sponsoring uh, state legislation related to, to preference policies. Oh, okay. Okay, so hopefully we can look at some of the lessons learned or... Um... <laughs> see see how these other cities are operationalizing this. Okay, well, thank you very much again for um, reporting back to us on this. And um, I, I, I think in terms of what you will come back to us with, so it sounds like you're going to come back to us with any updates to additional considerations, such as this workforce uh, potential. Um, is there anything else that you you need to work on to come before you come back to us i'll answer i'll, I'll answer that question um what we really needed before proceeding with this disparate impact study and sort of the implementation plan and the potential staffing costs was to see how close council was in terms of the preferences that we're offering today um what i'm hearing so far is that we uh, there's general, so from what, who have we heard from so far, we will now know that we'll also have to look into 
to work in Berkeley as a preference and, and also definitely do some disparate impact look at that because that could be interesting either way. Um, and that we need to think a little bit more about the unhoused situation and the extent to which that's already addressed through other city policies and whatnot. Oh, so this right, is really right. helpful to us and just helping us rather than give you a package deal, kind of know where we need to go next so that we can bring this again in the in the early summer. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it. That's all. Okay, thank you. We'll go next to Vice Mayor Bartlett. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. And, and, and thank you for this uh, amazing report, uh, Anna Cash and uh, Dr. Varhus and uh, Ms. Davis and all your work, really amazing. It's been a, quite a conversation through the years. I remember when uh, Councilman Drosty first uh, introduced this uh, a long time ago. So really wonderful to see it manifest. You know, it's 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 interesting having to uh, hone in on the situation uh, despite the the legal construct that we live in. Um, that that was chosen by the voters twice <laughs> uh, to 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 bar any effort. Um, to use resources to help specific people. Um, and so, you know, th when we did the the Bindex, as we call it, the Berkeley Inclusion and Diversity Index, um, honing in our city contracting history and our vendors uh, that we select, uh, you know, the, the method we used was a pretty robust analysis that showed that there was favoritism for one group in awarding our city contracts which allowed us to do remedi remediative, is that a word, <laughs> or reparative uh, policies to correct that. So corrective policies that otherwise would not be allowed because you, if, you're, if, you have, um, if, you, if you have evidence of discrimination, you can undo the discrimination, right, undo it. And so that's something to think about as we go into the next, next iteration of this policy uh, where that may exist. And you know, going back to the the short sales and the and the, the home sales, it's important to realize that uh, many of these people were um, hanging on to their homes, first time home buyers, uh, in a system that was really allowing the first time sales of homes to African Americans and people, uh, and so that their mortgage their mortgages were uh, less than uh, generous, and that many people had almost no equity in their homes when they were forced to do their sale. Um, so whether by domain or short sale, so the so the you know the 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 deficit of 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 wealth building the the um, financial emasculation of all these people um, is you can root it directly to the to the home to the house transfers and the subsequent um, loss of value in the community going forward. Um, so and and if you look at the I, we, we put some time with one of my colleagues are going through the the census data through the years and you can. You can spot the macroeconomic trends of the country um, being reflected in the community uh, from 1970 uh, peaking, and then we have the the the, the first large-scale industrial jobs transfer overseas. So from the shipping and steel uh, over overseas, and then it starts to dip, and then again as um, that that boom continued, keeps dipping, uh, then it stabilizes, and then you have the the housing crash, and it dips and it drops again. And has never recovered and has continued slow decline um, as we have our economic and demographic pressure on these people. You know, it, when I talk to people, um, when they call my office and ask me to help them get them an apartment in Berkeley or an affordable housing unit, 
um, you know, the, 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 the overwhelmingly it's two, it's two personas. I hear from senior citizens and from moms with kids. The seniors obviously want to come back to where they used to love in a place that has resources and senior centers and all the fun stuff we have in walkable Berkeley. Right. Uh, and then the, the, the moms, of course, they want access to that golden goose we have here in Berkeley, that school system, right? We have the re- the reason why no matter what happens here, no matter what mistakes we make or what macro trends occur, we are always in high demand because in San Francisco, as soon as that couple is a certain age, they have a kid, it's time to go to school, they're coming to Berkeley because we have the best public schools and it's a great experience. So these two these two personas, I think, need to be um, looked at in terms of how we weight people um, and how we focus on them, incentivizing their inclusion because they need it the most. The senior at the end of their life and the and the parent with a chance to enter their kid into the vehicle into an uplifted life, uh, which is a very conservative thing if you think about it. You know, a couple of kids here and there accessing. Uh, our wonderful education system. Um, and then, you know, thinking of, you know, one element that we could hone in on that many of the um, population we're talking about here uh, can help be identified through data is uh, incarcerated. So incarcerated persons or having immediate family members who were incarcerated um, in, in, you know, cross-referenced with uh, the certain zip codes or whatever or even the city could still work. I think that would uh, go a long way because of course, you know, we know that incarceration um, is a big warehousing for poor people uh, and a big, um, a big one way highway uh, for people into prison uh, with inequitable laws to keep them there and monetize their behavior. Um, You know, we know, we all know that many of the goods we take for granted from consumer goods uh, and even electronic goods are manufactured in prison. And I, in fact, I gave a speech about this uh, the other year um, at a graduation ceremony where I pointed out that every single cap and gown of every person marching came from one prison in South Carolina. So, you know, I think we can find a way to uh, achieve uh, our, our own little Berkeley um, karmic karmic duty by including them as a, as a persona to, to let in and the people that knew them, people that were around their immediate family members, uh, that's doable. Uh, and so again, looking at historic ties, uh, maybe tied to 1980 or before to give extra weight because it's, it's a higher concentration. Um, but overall great work and, um, look forward to, you know, seeing the next iteration of waiting and maybe honing in on some of the census data, um, and maybe even health data. Uh, to kind of hone in some more metrics to get a precision instrument here. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll go next to Councilmember Wingraff, followed by Councilmember Hahn. Well, thank you very much. And thank you uh, to the staff of uh, HHCS and to Healthy Black Families for this really wonderful and very important um, item. Um, I want to suggest... that if the city council is going to adopt a policy, and I completely agree and align myself with the comments of my colleagues, and especially with the comments of the mayor and with Councilmember Kesawani, um, 
but that we consider including natural disaster as a uh, as as a priority preference, and I'll tell you why. Because disasters of every kind increase inequality, and we see now in the state of California after much of the state was ravaged by wildfire, we see those communities becoming gentrified. And the lower income people who lived in those communities have been pushed out. And so I I think it's really important, given that we live in a very vulnerable geographic area, we're subject to so many natural disasters, that we include that in the list. It's not it's it's hopefully not good. We've been very lucky so far, but um, I really do think um, it would make sense for us to consider including that. And it's a little bit different than no fault eviction because um, no fault eviction is a kind of action, uh, man-made action, and um, people lose their housing and their ability to stay in their housing because of natural disasters and they can't come back because the land value increases after the disaster. You see what's happening in Coffee Park now, which was a working class neighborhood. Houses are selling for millions of dollars now, and the people who originally lived there cannot stay there. They've left. So um, that's something um, I don't know whether that was discussed, um, if it was discussed and rejected, or if it just wasn't discussed, but I would suggest that we include it. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's a really excellent point. I mean, I think what we're talking about is sort of involuntary displacement. Um, I, I, I agree with those comments. Um, okay, we'll go next to Council Rahan, followed by Councilmember Humber. Thank you very much, and I really appreciate hearing from my colleagues, in particular those who represent areas that were formerly redlined and hear what they think um, would be most important. Um, I think uh, there's, there's so many dimensions on which people have been treated unfairly and continue to be treated unfairly and unjustly. I think we could probably come up with a lot of criteria but I'm gonna take a slightly different tack here and say that I actually would like to narrow the number of criteria because I personally am most interested in capturing reparations for the people who have experienced the most extreme and systemic and targeted discrimination around housing in Berkeley, in Berkeley, right here. Um, and I have a lot of concern and sympathy for every form of injustice, but I don't think we're talking about so many opportunities that we should open it up for every single injustice. Um, and that's kind of hard to say, but I really uh, come into this very much with a reparations mindset. Um, with that in mind, uh, for myself, uh, I think the obviously the BART station displacement 
in particular for the developments at the BART stations. I don't know if, if we can do that, and I don't think we really need to, but I'll just say that that brings you right back, literally, onto the land um, that you you and your um, your your families were moved from. Um, I really like historical ties to redline areas, uh, and I spent a little bit of time looking at the census numbers while while listening to this pre these presentations. And it looks like the peak um, for the African American population in Berkeley was was in the 1970 census. And so I think for myself, I would say the historic ties, and I would cut that to maybe before 1980 or 1985. I mean, I, I live that up to the incredible group that has been doing the study here. I'm just pointing it out um, as a concept that I think would be important to me. I think that the evidence shows that formerly redlined areas have experienced enormous gentrification. And for me, the point of what we're doing here is not to capture, you know, everyone who's living in those areas now, but really to try and capture people who lived in those areas before this massive wave of displacement took place. And for me, looking at the demographics, um, that's probably um, if you lived in those red line areas previous, or if, if you had family ties previous to 1980 or 1985 or something like that. Um, I think foreclosure as well uh, was sort of the next wave of taking wealth and precluding the accumulation of wealth for people of color. Um, it's really uh, the next smack in the face. Um, first, very few people had access to capital to be able to become homeowners. And then we know there were all kinds of barriers um, and every generation faced new barriers, but the foreclosure crisis was really about uh, a lot, overwhelmingly about people of color who saved and saved and saved, and finally were able to invest in a home, but only with a usurious mortgage. They put their life savings into those homes, and when the foreclosures came, they took the life savings as well. Like, it, it brings those families back down to zero. Like he finally got there, and they're like, "No, we figured out another way to just take it all away." So that's very important to me as well, and it is it goes directly to housing and to wealth creation, and it's just a straight up robbery of people's homes and their life savings. So. Historic ties to red line areas, foreclosure, um, the BART station, again, that was about taking people's homes um, and they're taking away their opportunity to accumulate wealth. Um, I also think the um, eviction is, is, a, is a very important. And I wanna say that I'm, I'm very interested in what Councilmember Bartlett proposed. 
And I'm really trying to get my head around that. And I think we missed that. I think that that's a very, very interesting, very worthwhile uh, avenue to pursue, which is um, either having been formally incarcerated or, um, you know, somehow in a family that has been uh, impacted by incarceration and again just doing a little googling <laughs> during his during his comments i was able to ascertain that certain zip codes in berkeley have double and triple incarceration rates from other zip codes and i'm pretty sure we could get that actually down the census track i wasn't able to find it in in a minute and a half but um, certainly, zip code 94710 has the highest incarceration rate in the city. That happens to be uh, portions of Berkeley west of San Pablo. Um, 94702 and 94703, which cut north to south, also sort of below Sacramento, mostly. Um, but I think if we actually looked at census tracts for, um, I don't know, I'm going to say the top five or 10 census tracts for incarceration rates, um, I might use those uh, as well. Because for me, that really gets to um, what I'm most interested in trying to remedy through this particular mechanism. I have a couple other sort of questions or thoughts. One is that in whatever rating system we put together, if you have two or three or four of these characteristics, I would hope that that would put you higher up on the list. So if we layer these criteria on top of each other, I think we're actually going to be able to provide the opportunities to the actually to the people who have been most put down by all of these different events and systems and happenings. Uh, my, my last comment is uh, there are two groups in Berkeley that I am particularly concerned about that I'm not sure we've captured here. One is Native Americans. It seems to me that if you can trace your roots to Berkeley before, say, 1850 or 1820 or something like that, I think we can find a date, then um, you have suffered the ultimate displacement from this land. And you probably and your family have been subject to very extreme forms of genocide and displacement. And um, I would like um, us to consider how we can provide these housing opportunities for the people who originally lived on these lands. And the other group that I'm quite interested in is Japanese Americans who were dispossessed of their homes and their businesses and their property and sent to the concentration camps during World War II. That, that was a, there were a lot of Japanese Americans here in Berkeley, the history is very uh, clearly documented. Um, Berkeley was a major transit station, uh, a major collecting point 
for Japanese Americans during World War II. It's a very shameful part of our history that I don't think we talk enough about. But, um, and, and of course, they also suffered from the redlining. I mean, they uh, also could not buy homes or rent or live in certain areas of Berkeley. Um, and it, it's just, you know, a state-sponsored dispossession of homes that is easily documented. And quite frankly, that displacement has been so great that I'm not even sure people remember that we had a very significant, vibrant Japanese American population in Berkeley until that time. So those are my comments. Um, and I just want to thank this team and the city. Again, this is incredibly important work. And um, I'm sure it's hard work to do as well, emotionally. And I just want to thank you for doing that work and bringing it to us and hearing my comments. Thank you. We'll go now to Council Member Humbert. Thank you, uh, Mr. Mayor. Um, being last, I'll keep it short. I'd like to thank the HHCS staff, the community members who gave all their time and energy to this, um, the commissioners who worked hard on it, and healthy Black families, and, and frankly, everyone else who contributed to this really, really important work, I think. I'll join in the comments and statements of um, Mayor Aragine and Council Members Robinson, Kesserwani, Bartlett, Taplin, and Wingraff. Um, thank you so much. I've learned a whole lot tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, are there any other questions or comments at this time from the City Council on this item? I think this is a really good discussion, um, and I hope um, Dr. Varhus, this was helpful feedback. It was very helpful, um, Mr. Mayor, thank you. Um, if I could just make one quick remark. Um, in addition to that, it was very helpful and um, we have some ideas about moving forward. Um, I do wanna name that we do need to be careful and mindful of how many preferences we yeah. add. We, the preferences we're putting forward and Anna can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we have more preferences as currently proposed than we've seen in other communities. And adding too many preferences means nobody gets preference. So we need to be a little bit mindful about how we frame things. Although every everything that was said are all things that we can think about um, incorporating in, in creative ways. But one thing we will be mindful of is not overfilling our preferences. That's a good point. I think I noted in the attachment, um, and I'll think also in the report, that um, some cities have around four to five preferences. I think San Francisco is probably is the most. Um, so I think that that's a valid point. If we want to give priority to certain categories of people, we can't have too many because then they won't they won't be prioritized. So hopefully the input. I think you heard a, a strong consensus for certain things t today. Um, Councilor Taplin. Uh, thank you. I just want to iterate my strong support for several in particular, uh, those being uh, those um, preference criteria being 
displacement by BART, by foreclosure, and by eviction and ties to redlined areas. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, well, very grateful to HHCS, Anna Cash, um, and our community partners, Healthy Black Families, for all the work in advancing this. And um, look forward to the, the ordinance coming back to us. Um, so uh, unless there's any further discussion um, from the council, any, any further comments from staff before we conclude? Okay, um, if not, then that completes our agenda for the special meeting. Uh, we will not be taking public comment on non-agenda matters as the sole purpose of this meeting was to hold these two work sessions. So I will make a motion to adjourn. Second. Second. Okay, if we can please call the roll on adjournment. Councilmember Kesserwani? Yes. Kaplan? Yes. Bartlett? Yes. Yes, okay. Harrison? Is absent. Han? Yes. Wengraff? Yes. Robinson? Yes. Humbert? Yes. And Mayor Arkeen? Yes. Okay, thank you, colleagues. We are adjourned and hope everyone has a good evening.